Listener Production. Everyone relax, this is Willosophy with Will Anderson and my guest today is Stuart Goldsmith. Stuart Goldsmith is a brilliant comedian and also a brilliant interviewer. He has a podcast called The Comedian's Comedian Comcom Pod. The Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Uh, if you Google Stuart Goldsmith, you'll be able to find his Stuart with a U. A-R-T, Stuart Goldsmith. You can find all his stuff, including uh, his show, his presentations, and uh, many of the things that we talk about in this interview. Anyway, I I highly recommend his podcast. I listen to it a lot. He does really excellent interviews with comedians, so if you like interviews with comedians, and I assume if you're listening to this podcast then you like interviews with comedians, then uh, I could not more wholeheartedly endorse Stuart Goldsmith's podcast, ComCom Pod, the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Um, what else? What else can I tell you? Everything now is in this feed. Everyone relax, uh, which means that uh, TOEFOP, TOEFOP with friends, our AFL-adjacent podcast, Two Guys, One Cup, and a whole bunch of other things, uh, some live shows that we did with Gareth Reynolds and Adam Spencer and John Deeks, are up there at the moment. So have a look around, sample some of the other stuff that is now in the Everyone Relax feed and see what you might like there. You might not, not you might not like it all. And that is absolutely fine. Uh, if you don't like it all, just obviously take the two seconds it takes to flick by and find the episodes that you are looking for. If they happen to be philosophy episodes, for example, uh, they will be all clearly marked philosophy. They will have the art of the person who was on the podcast. So you'll still be able to easily identify uh, anything that it is that you're looking for, even if you don't want to listen to everything. But uh, I do absolutely recommend um, that you sample some of the other stuff. If it takes your interest, if you see a name pop up of somebody that you enjoy, have a little listen to some of the other things that Charlie and I make in our little universe. Uh, speaking of things that I make, uh, I am making at the moment <laughs> a couple of things. I still have a little run of my improvised shows. What are you talking about, Will? These are crowd work shows. I talk to the audience, but I don't pick on the audience. That's not what I do. And I don't film them and put them online. They're all just for the people there in the room on that night, uh, February the 3rd, Saturday, February the 3rd, I'll be at the Glass House in Port Macquarie doing what you're talking about, Will, there. And then I have some more Newcastle shows. I've been doing a lot of shows at the uh, the, the stand-up comedy club, the Newcastle Comedy Club uh, in Newcastle. So Friday, February 9th, Saturday, February 10th, I am doing my shows there. And then uh, Friday... Uh, February the 16th and Saturday, February the 17th. I think that's right. I think they are the dates. Anyway, uh, Friday and Saturday of that weekend, I will be uh, at the comedy club there in Newcastle doing those shows. And then that is the end of those. Uh, and well, who knows? Who knows when I'm going to be doing some improvised shows again? I'm looking at doing a big improvised tour in 2025, but I might sprinkle a few in uh, during the year this year if we have some time but I've got a couple of other big touring plans uh, for this year some live podcasts some live other shows and of course my tour will legitimate this is the biggest tour I have done in a very long time uh, at least five years but chances are it's probably going to be the biggest tour that I've done in the last decade if it rolls out how I want to roll it out basically what I'm looking at doing is uh, as many Australian dates in 2024 as I possibly can. And then in 2025, hopefully I will take the show overseas. I oh, know. 
fingers crossed. I have a lot of other commitments, but that is my plan. I would like to come up with a show that I can uh, work out in Australia this year and then hopefully have a version of that that I can take internationally the year after and maybe do some improvised shows in Australia, uh, you know, next year. Anyway, you don't need to know that much of my forward planning. What you do need to know is that I am starting working out what this new show is uh, in Adelaide at the Adelaide Fringe, March the 3rd or the 4th, something like that. Very early in March, I will start out uh, working out what is happening uh, in regard to my new show, Will Legitimate. So if you're in Adelaide, if you're at the Fringe Festival and you want to come and see what it is that I'm going to be talking about, then I would love for you to come and do that. The Garden of Unearthly Delights is, of course, where I will be doing my show, comedy.com.au for all the details of all the shows that I'm doing all over Australia. And then uh, when I do end up going internationally, all the details will be there too. Uh, you can check all my socials, of course. Uh, and there are links, link trees in all of those uh, as well. You know how to find things. I'm just letting you know that they're on. It's up to you to then find all the details. You'll find them in the places where you go. I don't need to tell you where to go. And I don't need to continue this introduction. I think we've done it enough. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed this episode, recorded last year with the fabulous Stuart Goldsmith. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Hello. Uh, I'm. <laughs> do I get a chance to say hello? <laughs> you can do whatever you want, Stu. It's a raw shark test, that question. It's ah, like, there we it's go. less about what you say and more what you choose to say and how you choose to say it. Yes. Well, I'm. as you know from me, I'm a person who likes to ensure that I've said hello <laughs> to both you and the listener. I am Stuart Goldsmith, a comedian, podcaster and speaker from the UK. Hello, Stuart Goldsmith. Uh, he's jealously looking at the, the greenery in your background, you Australian. Man, as we slip into another endless winter. Uh, well, this will uh, be interesting to you. So I don't know what the conversions are from, like you know, Celsius and Fahrenheit, and how familiar you are with any of those things. But uh, let's assume a low understanding. It has been. <laughs> Four days or five days in a row here over 30 degrees, which I think is like, you know, around your hundreds. And uh, it's September, so everything's fine. Everything should be fine. That doesn't, oh, that's not a bad sign. Everything's all right. That's everything's like- <laughs> all right. My, my only understanding of numbers uh-huh. is I did street shows in Rundle Mall in Adelaide mm. years ago, and it was 40 degrees, and I got heat stroke. Yeah. So I remember 40 degrees, you do a 45-minute show in the sun, it nearly kills you. And then... I feel like 20 degrees is, is that's balmy. That's nice. Is it nice or is it nearly nice? That, those are my two numbers. I've I got think, 40 and 20 and that's it. I think 20 to 25 is nice. Gotcha. 25 onwards is warm. Sure. Anything over 30, I would say is hot. And yes, as you said, 40 is melting. And are you suggesting by the, the fact of it being fine? Obviously, mm. I'm, I'm familiar with the fact that Australia's seasons are the other way around two yes. hours. But is the fact that it's very hot now in September mm. worrying in a climate change way? Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah, I am, Stu. That's right. Because because these are the temperatures of summer and it is barely spring. <laughs> gotcha. Understood. I'm less familiar with the Australian climate to be able to, to derive kind of nuance from that sort of position, but I do know how your mind works. I'm like, he's probably doing that. Yes, we, we are we're experiencing, and I know climate isn't weather, but everything's definitely changing. Mm. You know, we, we are now getting, we never get snow at Christmas. Snow comes in February, March. 
if it comes at all. And that's quite weird. And everyone's noticed that that's quite weird. And, you know, like summer holidays are like it was a weird summer this year. Climate isn't weather, fine. But it, everything's shifting. It is shifting. And I suspect it will shift more and faster and worse. I know what you say, climate isn't weather, in the same way as live at the Apollo isn't stand-up. But like, <laughs> you know, but it is a version of it and it is a good indicator of what is going on in a lot of ways. And I know you've been doing a deep dive on climate. Let's start there. Seeing we've already got there, let's just start at climate change. Let's dive in the deep end and talk about climate change because you have just come back from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival doing a show that is entirely about climate change and climate anxiety is my understanding. That's right. So, okay, firstly, why? Tell me why first. Because my shows are always an attempt to say what's on my mind. I don't necessarily know that I'm doing that at the time, but what I'm trying, that's not quite right. My shows are always an attempt to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And I became funnier when I had more problems. When I became a dad and my life got significantly harder, I became funnier because I had more stuff to complain about. My first show was uh, called The Reasonable Man. It was a long time ago. And it was about me encountering the fact that uh, I had spent all of this time in my life desperately trying to be exciting, going to fetish clubs, becoming a street performer, <laughs> running away with a circus. And after all of that, I had to accept that deep down I'm quite a boring person. So that was that was kind of like the, 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 uh, the thing, the, 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 the kernel of that show. I did a show about my anxiety and trying to encounter that. And I would find that normally, less so with the anxiety one, but when I complain about something to applause, I feel better mm -hmm. about it. I interrogate a subject, I get to grips with it, and I try to, I, I might not notice it at the time, maybe a year later I go, oh, I don't worry about kind of crying with rage in my car anymore since I did that bit for a tour, <laughs> you know. So I suppose I was a bit more intentional this time about going, I am suffering from eco-dread. And I think about it every morning and I wake up and I, I say this in the show, but it's not a funny bit. So please don't think I'm doing shtick at you. <laughs> but I wake up every morning, my kids wake me up, I go into the bathroom and halfway through having a piss, I suddenly remember the climate crisis. It's like this. It's like there's some sort of timer on my brain of like three and a half minutes. I come online, or the act of urinating. Something's like bang. <laughs> I'm awake, and I remember how bad things are, and I'm terrified. I've spent a long time being terrified. I would say my terror is is different now, and we can come on to that. So about eighteen months ago, I recognised I'd been doing that for a good six months, and I started wanting to write jokes about it because it, I wanted to process it. And also I became, and it's funny using psychological language about this. If I say I became a bit obsessed with it, that sounds like I lost my mind. But then maybe it's a completely reasonable reaction to some of the stuff that's going on. So maybe it isn't obsession. Maybe I just started listening to a lot of podcasts, watching YouTube lectures, like credible lectures on the climate, on eco-anxiety or eco-dread rather, how to cope with it. So I, I started to be on two missions. One, to work out what the fuck I should think to try and feel okay. And two, to work out how to communicate that to other people in a funny way. So that's the mission. The show started off with me. I wanted to call the show um, How to Feel Great About Climate Change. And a friend of mine, so that was kind of my model. And it was kind of a provocative title, like, I don't know how to feel great about climate change. But I thought, if I if I set that as the title, then I'm sure I'll work it out. And then a, a friend of mine pointed out that um, James Ross from Quantum Leopard, a brilliant, uh, extremely woke, extremely lefty comedy club in, in Britain, in London, 
Um, he said that if he didn't know me, he would assume from that title that I was a climate denier. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, yes, other people are going to have their own thoughts and agendas and what have you. So I, I kind of scaled back from Stu Saves the World into what it's what I discovered what it's really about. I say scaled back, that sounds like a decision. But I discovered that really it was about eco-dread. I'm feeling it. I feel terrible often. Probably you do too, you being the audience. And I want to heal me and you. I want to help. Do you know what I mean? I want to I want to help me cope with it and I want to help you cope with it. And then that sort of became the the, the basis for the show. So I'm I, I'm super fascinated by this topic as the comedy topic because it's something that's been very present in my work for years. And I did a show, I don't know, 27, 2018, somewhere around there that everybody sort of dubbed my climate change show, even though that hadn't been my intention going into it. It had just it had become that. Like yeah. the more I wrote about, you know, you know, as you know, in that process of expanding on the ideas you're most passionate about. Yeah. And to be honest, people responded very well to it. In 2021, my first show back uh, after the pandemic was a pandemic show, you know, a COVID show like everybody did. But just as I was about to go to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I got caught in a the second one, once in a hundred year floods that my area had had within a month of each other. And yeah the show became about that. And so I did two shows very much that were about climate change. And then this year, of course, because it hasn't gone away and it turns out my jokes didn't solve it, I attempted to write about climate change again. And every time that I did, what I found was that something had changed, that the audience who had an appetite for me to talk about it, in fact, like I'd, I won awards for one of those shows, you know, like there had been a real genuine passion for people to hear about this topic suddenly did not want to hear about it even anymore. Yeah. And I couldn't necessarily explain it. I've thought about it a lot. So I just put that as context when I ask you, how did you find people respond to you talking about it? Yeah, thank you. That's uh, I, I didn't know you'd done all that. Pando years. I haven't been connected to Australia in the way I normally would. And I'm I'm fascinated that you did that. And I would love to watch that show. I don't think I could. I, there were two or three other climate shows I knew about that I deliberately didn't watch whilst I was writing mine, because that's a, a huge problem I have artistically, is if I want to write a joke about fridges and I hear a great joke about fridges, that's the only thing I can think of. So I've got to kind of avoid anything on the subject. People would recommend, oh, so-and-so's done this. I'm like, great, I'll put it on the list. I'm not going to look at it. Well, and before you go into that, I'm going to say this just to make you feel okay like about what you've just said. I think this is one of those topics where everybody should be talking about it. I wouldn't mind if I went to every single comedy show and they had a bit on climate change. No, no, for sure, for sure. But what I mean is like, if, it's almost like if I've got a joke about carbon footprints, and then I hear mm. someone, you know, yours or Bill Burr's or whoever's joke about carbon footprints, it'll be very hard for me to write a different joke about carbon footprints because I'll be like, oh, mm. they've nailed it. I give up. <laughs> I give a very, very low threshold, very low surrender threshold. Um, so how I found it was really, really hard, really painful. Um, I made all sorts of assumptions that were not borne out by the uh, the situation, by the audience. I, I expected, I genuinely expected I'd go on stage and say, um, you, know, you're, you know, you're terrified of the climate crisis, right? Dot, dot, dot into material. And I'd get that far, you know, metaphorically, and people would say, no, no, we don't care about it. We, we don't care. Also, we're angry at you for bringing it up. Why are you going to talk about this? What a drag. Not necessarily we're deniers, but either, 
like if they'd encountered it or thought about it at all. And this is this is maybe unfair to audiences because I've got no actual data on this. As comics, all the data we have is basically what was the vibe in the room. And you know as well as I do that you can absolutely mistake that. You can you can think, oh, they hated that, and then afterwards. Someone says, oh, they were listening. And you're like, oh, that's not good enough. But then people come up and say, no, I really got a lot out of that. I don't want to kind of paint them all in the same thing. And also, <laughs> what a wordsmith I am, paint them all in the same thing. Well, I, I call that <laughs> anecdata, right? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah, right. But I like that's what I'm asking you. I'm asking you for, I'm not asking you as a scientist who's written a book, like for a sure. thesis Thank about you. this. Yeah. I'm asking you for your personal yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah. My personal opinion was it was bloody hard. And I was springing it on people in comedy clubs. I wasn't touring it. I was turning up at the Chuckle Hut on a Friday night. And, you know, which I, I don't think that really exists. There may be one somewhere in the world, in which case it wasn't there. Um, but I would turn up, I'd be doing a set and I would get them on side with five minutes of Trust Me, I'm a Comedian. And then I would gear change and go, I'm going to talk about the climate. Why would you even say that? I don't normally go, I'm going to talk about shopping. Do you mm. know what I mean? I had to relearn the thing because it is such... Like if you do a joke about the climate and do a new joke and it isn't funny, they don't just not laugh. They're sad now mm. and they're, they're frustrated and <laughs> yeah. angry. And they, they, you brought up a thing they don't want to think about. I had, a, I had a, an early joke which didn't make the show, which was about how it's socially rude to bring up climate change. And I sort of imagined I had this premise where I imagined the speeches at a wedding with someone saying, give it up for Jean on the catering. She was fantastic. Uh, the bridesmaids, everyone, don't they look lovely? Let's not forget that the British had concentration camps in Kenya as recently as the 50s. <laughs> and give it up for the band. Do you know what I mean? And it, it is just this, it's this, just this abrupt gear change to suddenly lurch into we are all in terrible trouble and to make that funny is very very hard and I, I had one or two revelations along the way one of them very very late in the day where I suddenly realized I have to begin by assuring them that I'm not going to preach to them because my angle on the subject is, you'll know Dr. Matt Winning, I'm sure. He's a, a comic in the UK and he's also literally a climate researcher and has been for 20 years. Like he's a proper, he's, he's in the guts of it. I'm not an academic and I'm not a, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an activist. I'm beginning to sort of put some, you know, dip some very pathetically gentle toes in the sort of activism pool. But I'm not those things. My angle is I'm most of us. I'm uninformed. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm not, I don't have a solution, but I do want to talk. I want to drag our collective fear into the light so that we can talk about it. So I needed to find a really funny way of saying that right at the start. And, you know, there were all these other attendant issues. Do I say climate in the title of the show? Does that make it very easy for people to opt out of it? I care passionately about the climate, but before this year, if someone handed me 10 flyers and one of them said climate, I'm like, that's an easy one to ignore. You know, so, so I had to make all these decisions. How do I let them know I'm talking about it? Do I spring them on it? Do I do like the movie Dusk Till Dawn, where I go, it's a comedy show, 15 minutes in, it's vampires, yeah. it's climate vampires, you know. <laughs> what, what do I do? What do I do? So I found it, the short answer is, I found it really, 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 really hard. And I, I have... Um, a regular gig that I do in Bristol called Chops Comedy, which is like a, a not far from my house. And I would go there and commit to doing sort of 10 or 15 of new every week that was about that. It's a tiny gig with a pretty regular audience. So I was like, it's Doom Guy again. You know what I mean? I'd be like, oh, today I have to open because of the way the running order works. You know, uh, MC warms them up and I'm like, welcome, everybody. Remember me? Yes, half of you have heard of my climate doom and the other half are about to be even sadder than you are. So... 
I, I was firing off. I'm not a topical comic, but I was trying to respond to topical stories about power plants and political decisions, what have you. And it, it just, I found it monumentally difficult and challenging and punishing. But I was sort of sustained, partly because I was kind of obsessed with it and I didn't want to talk about anything else. And partly because I had the... Argument. I mean, I have most privileges, um, uh, but this is a, a funny sort of a privilege I, I had in terms of this, the challenge of talking about the climate. I had become, and I've been dancing around this when I talk about it, but I'll say it because it's you. I was kind of bored of stand-up. Mm -hmm. I was kind of bored. The hit wasn't hitting me so hard. My kids are both in school. I don't want to be away at evenings and weekends. And so the relationships I've built up over years with weekend clubs I'm starting to feel like I don't want to drive or travel for hours and hours and hours in order to get what amounts to an hour and 20 of stage time over a weekend at the expense of burning an entire weekend with my children, who I don't see as much of as I'd like. I started to get a bit frustrated and a bit bored. And I found that I would, you know, I'm not one of those guys who's like, I'd rip a gig and the buzz wouldn't last. I'm not saying I was destroying every room I was in, but even when I had lovely gigs that I was doing really well, I would notice that I didn't really care. And I found that when I talked about the climate, even if it went wrong, it was hard and I got hooked. I got hooked again on the challenge. Yeah. How, how do you make it funny? Because it is by its very nature depressing. And as you would have known from, it's one of those topics where the more you know, the worse you feel. Like this is not Absolutely. a rabbit hole where you go down it and you suddenly discover a whole bunch of hidden good news, although there is some, yeah. but you have to wade through a lot of shit to get to it. Absolutely. And also I had to not just, like I had one or two kind of totemic jokes that I went, that bit works. That's not just a climate fact with a dick joke on the end. That is a joke which is completely about shared responsibility or guilt or that mm -hmm. joke is about whatever it is. You know, I had one or two bits and I thought if those bits work and they work in clubs, surely I can just write more of those. Just is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. But, you know, surely I could do it. I had just a few one or two little bits that I went, that is what I'm trying to do. I hope I can build that out. The other thing is I really had to sort of interrogate what I was trying to do with the gear because I think for a while, part of why it was tough was that I was angry and I became angry at them because they didn't seem to care. Mm -hmm. And then I'm trying to punish them. And I'm trying to say, you do, you know, like take any, any awful climate fact, we have to reduce our carbon emissions by 40% by the end of this decade, but we're predicted a 10% rise. That's going to be catastrophic. I believe, as you may, we're definitely going to blast through 1.5 degrees. That is going to have enormous implications. That is awful. A lot of people don't know that. And it's not their fault they don't know that, in a way. Well, there's a lot of money spent by people who have agendas to make sure that they don't know that. That's the problem. Absolutely it's right. Not, that is, that is it's very not well put. Yeah. necessarily the fact that people are apathetic or don't care. There is just big companies with a lot of money who literally have made it very difficult for people to find out what the truth is or to obfuscate. Obfuscate? Obfuscate. I knew exactly, it yeah. was close but didn't quite get that one. I didn't <laughs> land it. Just like I, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't have corrected you if you'd styled it out. I'd have been like, that's yours. You can have that. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. But I think I knew that I was putting my head in the sand and I was, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously 
what I was angry was, Will, was myself. I realise that now. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in a narratively satisfying way. And I, I think I I knew that I was, oh God, I, I, Robin Ince said something on Facebook yesterday about the latest horrific round of Me Too allegations mm. surrounding, but not mm. limited to, Russell Brand. And he said, and I can't remember who he was quoting, but it was a Holocaust survivor who said that when people told him we didn't know, he he accepted that, but he also thought you probably had to try, you had to work quite hard not to know. And that really, that's such a such a, a gut punch. And I think I was working, I personally was working quite hard not to know. Mm. It's easy to omit things. Like the big decisions I think that we make in our lives. You 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 might see something, you go, that's a good thing. I'll go for that. I'm attracted to that. Or you might go, that's a negative thing. I'm scared of that. I'll stay away. But most often when something is negative, you don't notice that you've decided to stay away from it. You don't know. It's such a tiny little micro decision. Someone, do you want to read this thing, this book, this really the Greta Thunberg book I got given for Christmas? Do you want to, do you want to actually get stuck into this? Well, I'm really busy and you don't give it a second thought. And, and I think I was doing everything along that spectrum of easy work to ignore it and hard work to ignore it. And and as I suppose I would, I would, I was just angry. I just got angry at them. And of course you do a joke and you think, well, this joke's work, but it doesn't work because it's worked in a different circumstances, but you haven't just, now you've just made them sad for five minutes and you're like, well, this one will get them. And of course it doesn't because it's, uh, you know, it doesn't have momentum and all, all the rest of it. So I was, I was angry at them and I had to moderate that. And I also, even when I wasn't angry at them, I would be like, Guys, you know, you know, I used to, I, again, I dropped it from the show, maybe it'll reappear, but I had a bit about Fairphones, whereby you may know the Fairphone is the only phone that, that is guaranteed not to have any minerals in it that are, are mined by children in uh, DRC. It's the only one guaranteed. That doesn't mean every phone in, in everyone's pocket has got slave children minerals in them, but or effectively slaves, indentured uh, children. It doesn't mean everyone, but a large percentage of them. And you, it, how do you say that in a club? You can't, I can't make that funny. I can make a joke about me being committed to buying a Fairphone and then bailing at the last minute mm -hmm. because it turns out not to have a headphone jack and apparently that's my line in the sand. But I just to bring up the context of the thing I'm talking about is such a downer. So I I realised, I was made aware by a friend, my friend Belina Raffi, who works in sustainable stand-up. Um, she said, you have to find the delight. You have to find the giddiness and the delight and the the silliness. And I'm so I'm so indebted to her for pointing that out because it is very, very difficult for me, for anyone suffering eco-dread to find giddiness and delight in talking about eco-dread. But if you don't, you're not communicating anymore. You're just hitting them over the head with a baseball bat over and over again. And who wants to be any part of either end of that? So this comes back to, and this is very interesting to me, all of this I find absolutely fascinating and um, you're so such a good person to talk to about it because you have such a contextual knowledge of comedy in general and how it works and you've spoken to various people, you've consumed so mm. much different comedy and so you instinctively know these things but it is very hard to talk about something that you're angry about and then just say, oh, that's right, but I have to take the anger out or hide the anger so that I can open that door to communicate with people. And it suddenly gets to this point or this question, which is at the heart of it, which is how much do you believe in the capacity for comedy to be able to change someone's mind or open someone's mind or open the door? So let's start with that. Like do, how powerful 
do you think comedy can be in that situation? Because there is a spectrum clearly from it can't change any, anyone's mind and it just reinforces prejudice to mm. people who believe that if you know, you, someone just hears the right joke, then everything will be fixed. My gut instinct is that it's somewhere in between. I know that it changes people's minds because I once went to see Prince entirely based on a Paul F. Tompkins routine. Like comedy can get you to do something. <laughs> right? It can shift units. It can shift units. Oh, yeah. Um, but, but how, like how yeah. on that spectrum, like what, what do you think its capacity mm. is even going into that conversation? I think that's a fantastic question, Will. Uh, I think that I know that there are certain ways in which I am shaped because of Mark Thomas, mm -hmm. say, in the UK. You're familiar? You'll be yeah, familiar. I am. I mean, the listeners might not be, but a very sort of left-wing political, like, 80s? And we're talking 80s? Yes, I would say 80s. Yeah. Um, late 80s, 80s onwards. 90s, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. He, so he, and he's still doing these incredible yes. shows, which are really sort of theatrical and, and informed and... and uh, he was at the time a sort of political pr prankster. Sounds crap, but he would. He did a thing. I remember where he went and bought a thousand uh, burgers from McDonald's and then sold them outside from a van for one p less. You know, to see. You know, he he would turn up at arms fairs mm. and talk his way in. And I remember he I, he was so inspiring to me. He did, because he has such a gentle. He knows everyone from the kind of you know he'll interview a lord and then the chief commissioner, the police or whoever, and then the activists. And he would always say. Now, I remember one of his little kind of callbacks and one of his things was he'd go, now, me and the uh, the Lord Chief so-and-so, the constabulary, we got a bit of previous, you know, and it's just <laughs> it, like, it, it's it's it was so warm. Mm -hmm. And I thinking about it in the context of that silliness, it, it wasn't always giddy and silly, but what he did had warmth and depth and it was um, interrogative. I keep using variations on that word. It got into the viscera, you know, it was like, this is what this is really about. And... So that informs my political consciousness. I could never in my life vote Tory. I simply couldn't do it. And I know, I mean, I don't want to do it, but should I change my mind and want to, I would not be able to bring myself to. And that is in no large part, uh, no small part to, due to Mark Thomas. I definitely think comedy, you know, the, the thing that I thought about this in the, in the writing of the show was, there are certain things that I do, and I'm sure you do as well, where you always remember someone's joke. Every time you do a particular thing, every time you take veg out of the crisper tray, salad out of the crisper tray in the bottom of your fridge, you think of the Seinfeld routine, whatever. And I thought, if I can write a joke that every time someone is about to put their, inverted commas, compostable coffee cup into the cardboard recycling, mm -hmm. they remember the joke and then they don't because it, it is compostable, but not in their home composter. It has to be taken to a train station and put into a special thing where they will, uh, you know, wherever the, the, the collected things are. I don't know how across this you are in, in Australia, but all of this vegware stuff, it's only compostable if it undergoes a special industrial composting process, which it isn't going to because everyone's just going to fuck it in the bin. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's compostable. Fine. It's got a thin layer of plastic inside it. It's not compostable. Um, in Australia, we're str still struggling with the fact that uh, it turns out that you, you like because people in Australia would be fond of recycling, but what they're not fond of is doing any of the things that you do to make recycling effective, like taking the hard lids sure. off your bottles or washing them out. Or, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, they put yeah. them in the recycling bin, but they're not actually yeah. doing anything that's particularly helpful to the recycling process. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All of that kind of stuff. Yeah. They, although they call it wish cycling, uh -huh. where you um, 
you you put something in your domestic mm. recycling thinking i'm not sure of the system presumably mm. this will work <laughs> and then that's it and it, and it doesn't and, you know, yeah. whatever it is i'm sure there's no way to find out apart from that instruction thing they have on top of the beer <laughs> i know i know but then also the, those change in the uk at least those change depending on which local authority mm-hmm. you're part of and they conflict and sometimes you know you it's mm-hmm. so Oh God, recycling mm. is a whole thing. And then as well as all of the, do they just t- ship it to India and burn it on a beach? Do they, mm. what do they do with it? All of those kind of questions. On top of that, there is, what does it matter if we recycle? If if Sunak's going to roll back all of his promises and, you know, or if people are going to take private jets to play. There's, there's so many, so many issues. What, how did I get onto that? I was talking you about, talking oh yes, trying yes. to write a joke, trying to change people's mm. minds with, with, a, with a joke. I do think that it's possible. I think it's like, I think it's like parenting in that your children don't learn from the bricks. They learn from the mortar. They don't learn from the big lesson you present them with. They learn from how you act. They learn from whether or not you, you know, someone cut you up and you shouted at them unthinkingly or you said, oh, that's pretty annoying. But, you know, doesn't matter at the end of the day and you get on with it. So they learn from the they learn from the bits in between the big lessons you're trying to teach them, which they completely ignore. And I imagine comedy has a similar sort of thing. I have yet to write a joke that will change the world, you know, the recycling joke, but I'm sure it's out there. I think that my it's not my answer, it's a quote, and I, I've got a reading list on my website of all of the research I did. So people can look at stuartgoldsmith.com slash <laughs> just go to go to you know, com slash climate and there's a link yeah. there to the reading list there no, nothing that says fun comedy more like uh, sending someone to a no. reading list <laughs> a reading list I know I know well in this show I have a joke about the fact it's a reading list but we're going to that now um, but what, I, what I'm keen to is I don't want to mm. pinch anyone's ideas because people are out there thinking mm. and putting it's like stealing someone's jokes I always try and credit it and I'm temporarily embarrassed to remember I can't credit it The this idea that um, recycling, individual actions and recycling, what have you, should be a means of climate communication. Mm-hmm. You're not saving the world with your one cup. You're showing people around you that you give a mm-hmm. shit. So on that on that kind of level, doing jokes that show that you give a shit might blossom and it might help and it might other, other people might give a shit. I also, we're all narcissists in comedy. We're all messianic. And... I have been, as I swing wildly from hope to despair about the climate in the writing of the show, I would swing wildly between I can do nothing and I personally can save the world, you know? So that, you know, you're constantly on a pendulum between those two things. It turns out, my research into eco-dread has shown me, it turns out that's totally normal. You know, to be elated one moment. and th- There were moments in the writing of the show when I thought, oh, fuck, we're going to solve the climate crisis before I before I finish this show. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's disappointing artistically. And I was so bubbling over with hope and optimism. And then there were times when I, I could barely turn on my laptop to write about it because I, you know, because I'm looking at my laptop and going, Christ, what's in here and how has this been manufactured? And, you know. Yeah. You, well, that's, I love this. I, I love all of this. I could, I mean, we're going to talk about other things, but I'm not going to get off this yet because I just like talking about this and I like talking to you about this. And I'll give you like a couple of, Moments of hope, because I think you're absolutely right in that don't, people don't want to read all the doom and gloom, but if somebody can communicate some of those ideas to them in a way that is fun and sticky to them, then that is a good service. You are doing good work. And I can sometimes be very cynical about the effect that comedy can have, but I've had instances, and this one just comes to mind because it was about the climate. There was uh, some parents who came to my show and they asked to come backstage and I was like, okay, are you going to, and the, the reason they asked to come backstage was that they had come to the show the night before 
and they had liked the show and they had brought along their son who they just had not been able to find a way to talk about. He was completely didn't believe that climate change was a thing. Just they could not find any connection point. It was really tearing them apart as a family. This, Is this their, their adult son? Their adult son. He, he disagreed. He was a denier. Disagreed. A denier. Gotcha. And could not find a way to communicate with him. And it was literally tearing apart their family. And they brought him along and they wanted to come and say to me that they, for the first time ever, they'd been able to at least have a conversation about it because of the show. And I think, th th I bet there's those things. Yeah. You, you Maybe you're not going to, you know, like it's not all going to get fit. Like, you know what? Stu's done a good run in Edinburgh and like temperature's gone down <laughs> one degree worldwide. Yeah, yeah, I mean, know, if anything, the ice caps have grown back. <laughs> With Sudo, with, I don't know if you've seen what Rishi Sudo's latest thing is. He's rolled back in the UK so many of these climate promises, this weird nonsensical attempt to turn the climate into a culture war so that he can cling on, so yes. the Tories can cling on to power rather than get smashed. If anything, after my show, things are worse. So I think that there that, will great. definitely that's be great. those moments, right? Like there is a connection point. It is worth doing it for those reasons. But I'm interested in what your perspective on this is. I think that part of the reason that it's harder now is that post-COVID, and I say post-COVID only in the sense that that's how people refer to it, <laughs> not that COVID is over, which speaks to it, yeah. that this I, we went into the pandemic, I think, with a general sense that people would say, believe the science, we believe the science. And then in the last few years, there has been this massive movement against science and scientists. And I think that it's had a damaging effect. It's had a flow on damaging effect when it comes to talking about climate change, because I don't think that people do instinctively believe science or scientists in the way that they did previous thoughts. Yeah. My, my thoughts on that are that, you're, I mean, you're, you're quite right, that has certainly happened. And, and in part, that's to do with the pandemic. And in part, I think it's to do with, I don't want to single out TikTok in particular, mm. but platforms which allow people to create their own entertainment mm -hmm. and as a result all of the good things about the democratization of broadcastness <laughs> the democratization <laughs> of broadcasting is that anyone can now that whole thing of famous for 15 minutes where anyone can kind of put stuff out there I, when we were thinking, wow, anyone can be a comedian. Well, we weren't thinking, wow, we were thinking, oh, shit, anyone can be a comedian. <laughs> but also anyone can be a heavily inverted commas news journalist. Anyone can be a journalist. Anyone, anybody, no matter how ill-informed, can go viral with their ill-informed bullshit. And that sort of reduces everything to this weird soup whereby everyone's opinion is as equal as anything else. And obviously that's horseshit. That's just awful. So there, there is that. I also think, however... And I, this is a thing I cling on to. I believe this to be to be true, that the number of climate deniers, for example, in this country—that's my children leaving for school. Um, uh, the number of—I didn't mean to paint them as climate deniers. <laughs> now, now we can speak the real truth. Will now they're gone. Um, the number of climate deniers in in—I believe the stat is for this country is way less than you would think if you looked on social media. Social media artificially inflates, as we know, outrageous opinions and, and what have you. We One of the things to cling to, one of the rafts to cling to, is that the overwhelming majority do believe in the science. It's just that we think, like with gender, like with the whole trans, you know, trans culture war, the overwhelming majority of people couldn't give a shit and are all in favour of love and freedom and everything else. It's just that a small majority 
of fuckheads are kind of um, have a massively overinflated platform and it looks you know people can now organize you know the way the way politics used to work hundreds and hundreds of years ago was the lord on the hill and if the serfs were unhappy they get their pitchforks they go find the lord on the hill and they burn him out and they go fucking change and then maybe there would be there would be change and now God, I've got myself into muddy waters to try and conclude this analogy. Now, we A, don't know who the Lord on the Hill is, because really they're the platform owners or the Murdochs of this world, what have you. But also, the um, it's... <laughs> I'm going to have to pause here while I try and work out what the fuck I'm talking about. I, li- I like to hear you talk through it. That's the... Uh, I'm enjoying... Like, I love the fact that you've you've set yourself out on a path. Yes. You've decided halfway through that you're like, I'm not sure that I can actually land this. You don't even need to because people understand what you're trying to say. But the question that comes off it is this. What is soft denial like apathy, not getting actively involved in the way you are, as bad as, like there may not be any literal, you know, I mean there might be a very small percentage of people who don't believe that climate change is a real thing. But what about the people who generally kind of do believe that it's a thing but aren't, aren't going to do anything meaningful or substantial to do anything about it? It's a great question, and I'll take that after I land my analogy, which oh, yeah, I think I can do. You you No, no, no. That was you dealt with that perfectly spectacular hosting will. Um I think what it means what I was trying to say is something yeah. along the lines of the internet gives us the impression that there are mobs running everywhere, that there are mobs running, running around in circles, and some of them are against us and some of them are with us. And actually a lot of that is illusion. It's like a sort of Star Trek holodeck thing where you go, we're a mob, and then the thing switches off and you go, I'm alone. You know, so so it's it's very difficult to work out um the reality of of the position, the reality of the groundswell and the momentum. Do you know what I mean? That's so, so hard to do, you know. You because now people can pick fights and pylons and and say, we disagree. My split my weird factional extremist splinter group disagrees with this decision, but I'm able to motivate the the 200 people in that group. We all pile on on someone's Twitter account, and any reasonable observer would look at that and go, wow, 200 people disagree with that. That must represent a percentage of all the people who disagree with it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it's all of them. So that was the end of my slightly weak analogy. Now, to come to your next question, which was um, I think is soft activism worse mm. in a way? I don't know, but I suspect that, like, there is one there is one position on this, which is that we should all be losing our minds and consider it a moral obligation to dismantle the fossil fuel industry. We should all be blowing up pipelines. We should all say stop. The only way we're going to get out of this. And that's more complicated than that sentence is. But one of the only ways that most of us can survive is if there is a, a pandemic style, all the planes stop, massive abrupt change in how we live. And we've seen it can happen because we saw the pandemic. Everyone became individually, financially motivated, everyone the companies, to stop. Without a change of that severity, that enormity, we remain in extremely serious trouble. So there's one end of the scale which says, blow up the pipelines, you know, stop everything happening, stop the planes taking off. And and I think that will, I think that will start to happen more and more. I mean, it's already a tiny little bit, but I think as people recognize, you know, the more extremist end of the, the activism, people are becoming more and more desperate and more and more scared, understandably so. And without a sense of like real change being 
about to happen or real progress being made. And it's very, very hard to have any sense of that now. I think that will happen more and more. However, what we can do, and you have to focus on, you've got to control the controllables. You've got to focus on what one can do if one is not prepared to risk going to prison for the sake of one's children or simply because I've not heard great things about prison. You know, <laughs> like what you can do is try to move everything along in that direction. And I just don't know. I don't know if culture change is only possible when people throw themselves in front of horses or if culture change is only possible when everyone is slightly changing or enough people are slightly changing to the extent that the outliers throw themselves in front of horses and it happens anyway. I don't know whether the suffragette movement would have been successful or not without throwing herself, without Pankhurst throwing herself under a horse. I don't know. That, you know, like the Rosa Parks thing, I've heard that Rosa Parks, I don't believe this is conspiracy. I believe that that was a kind of, it had happened a few weeks earlier yep, with someone else. That's right. And then that's Rosa true. Parks repeated the action as a political movement. I don't know about whether the climate will start to, you know, whether it will change and in what direction in people's consciousness if someone attempts to, God forbid, blow up the Houses of Parliament with a lovely orange explosion, who knows? You know, I don't know which bits of those will work. And, and I think in a, in a wider context, one of the things I'm really interested in, in talking to, and I, I, this happened at Edinburgh, which is very satisfying, activists were coming to see the show, crusty weavy types, and the kind of middle-class activists who were like, I think I'm going to go and march for the first time ever. They were coming to see the show and saying, thank you, we needed that. Can you come and do it for these this other group? Because they need to hear this. They need they need to hear this. I don't think I'm flattering myself too much, but I did get the feedback that like it would be really good if mm. these guys I know at Just Stop Oil heard this and they, it would make them feel good and be energised. Also, I had people coming to see it who work in sustainability at high levels in, in various mm. businesses and what have you. In, in the prep for the show, I was interviewing corporate sustainability people of all sorts from sometimes massive, massive, massive organizations and getting their take on it. You know, so you've got the you've got the blow up the pipeline, smash the system people, and then you've got people who are like, no, 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 we can't just mm. use a magic wand to disappear the fossil fuel industries, because those are people who know about infrastructure. And we are going to need colossal amounts of infrastructure. There's so you know, so we have to change it. And there are lots of people working in sustainability and, and working in big businesses who are like, well, this is my job, but I'm not really aligned with X, Y, Z. We need everyone. I've ne if anyone can tell me, if anyone can, can email me via you, or just me, um, to tell me who said this, I would love it because I heard this and I don't know to whom to attribute it. The question is, what do we do about climate change? The answer is everything. Yes. We do everything. And there are some people who think direct carbon capture from the air is going to save us all. And some people are like, that is a pipe dream that's going to allow business to continue as usual. I don't know what the answer is, but I'm really glad that people are working on both. Mm. You know what I mean? And like blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, white hydrogen, like no hydrogen. Mm. And that is, I think, one of the, the more optimistic things that my, my, my very small font research has led me to discover. A lot of very clever people are working really, really hard to try and sort this out. And so, sort this out is so laughably vague. No, I, I mean, I love this because 
like, I mean, sometimes it's like, what can I bring to the table, right? Yeah. It's no good if you're trying to protest against climate change and you blow up a pipeline and you like for your children's future and then you end up in prison and your children only get to visit you on the weekends. It doesn't really help your children's future. Absolutely. But not. the people who are willing to blow up the pipeline sometimes need a pep speech beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you are a person that like the hardest routine probably I've ever written because most of my audience are pretty much like, you know, like at, at the at the very least latte lefties, you know, Chardonnay socialists and then, yeah. you know, people to, further to the left. And, you know, so traditionally I'm not really going to do something politically that particularly shocks my audience. And then this year – I did like quite a long piece about the the food protesters, the Just Stop Oil, you know, people throwing the food at art because I found it very interesting to me that everyone hated them. Like both sides of politics, like nobody had any empathy for them and mostly it came down to this idea of people saying, well, that's not going to help. And I'm like, well, it, it wasn't the first thing they tried. It's not the only thing they're doing. And I, then I made a whole bunch of arguments about why I thought they were actually good things. But more, the point was, that I'm not going to protest in that way. I'm probably not going to protest in any of those ways. But if I can write a piece about why protest is good, then mm -hmm. at least hopefully that encourages those people who might be willing yeah. to protest. or might. And I think that what you're talking about when you say these people came and saw my show, these people, that for those who are like doing the work because they have the capacity or the knowledge or the resources mm -hmm. or the whatever it is to do that work in all the different ways, to have someone who is a cheerleader for them, who can make them laugh, who can encourage them yeah. to say that they're on the right page, then that's where you make a real difference rather than someone who's a climate denier walks in, sees your show and goes, you know what? I was wrong about it all. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I totally agree with that. I do think there are two perspectives on that, mm. depending about where on the pendulum I am. Mm. Either I am using my skill set as a communicator and a mm. uniter of people and a kind of refresher. The other side of it is I'm not doing nearly enough. That is an absolute get out clause. It's like, oh well, don't worry, don't worry, I'll help guys. I'll write some jokes about it. You know, I, I feel I feel both things. I, for me, that became apparent shortly before Just Stop Oil. I think it was before they threw the soup at the painting. It was a couple of weeks before someone from Just Stop Oil threw the tomato soup at the at the Van Gogh. Yeah. I went to a local meeting. I got a flyer through the door where I live in Bristol. Um, so, you know, planet's burning, come to a meeting of this organisation, Just Stop Oil. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to check this out. And I went along and the it was not well attended. And it was a bit like, you ever you have this phenomenon where, I've seen this in Australia, I'm sure, you have a bunch of Christians on the street with a whiteboard mm. doing a, a, some sort of infographic where they go, that's a... That's a, a way of getting across this bridge. And look, that turns out to be Christ kind of thing. And they will have a small audience around them. And if you watch them for two minutes, you realise 90% of their small audience are members of the organisation. They're like faking an audience for each other. The Just Stop Oil thing, there were literally six people in the room, two people talking, four of us listening, and then it turned out two of the people listening were also the people. Mm. They weren't trying to disguise it. What I mean is, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is, it was small, it was under-attended, they were passionate. And I, at one point, I felt like, Am I the only person that actually, is this like a Mission Impossible thing that's been created for me? Um, but one of the things they said, which was the most useful thing they said, or not, it was just a really interesting insight. They said, we have arrestable actions and non-arrestable uh, actions. You know, there are things you can do in which you won't get arrested. There are protests you go to where the police know about them. They're not going to arrest anyone because we've promised to behave. That is subject to extremists kicking off and it becoming something else. 
But one of the things you can do if you don't want to get arrested, and this speaks to what you're saying in, in a kind of way about, about comedy, you can go along and collect people from the police station who've just been de-arrested. And you can go and sort them out and take them home. And if they're a sort of elderly warrior granny who uh, needs, you know, a lift in your diesel van or whatever it is, you know, <laughs> maybe, maybe they need help. They need help. You can still help, even if you're not going to climb a gantry and glue yourself to the top of a crane or what, and go to prison for God knows how long. So you can still help. They don't just need, you know, it's like in a war. We're on a war footing, we should be. And in a war, you need guys that play the tuba. You know what I mean? Like, and if you're really good at the tuba and every time you play the tuba, you feel it in your soul and everyone goes like, fuck yeah, you know, the pipers, the bagpipers on an army of Highlanders, you know, you feel that noise and you go, we can do it. And as a result, you do do it. Maybe the most we can do is play the tuba, you know? You've got to do what's best for you. And if, if someone with our skills as communicators, would it be a waste if we went and got arrested for something where we could be geeing up and rallying the troops kind of thing? Or would it be us putting our money where our mouth is? I don't know. I don't know. I am interested in what next, because the problem with, you know, climate change is that it, despite, you know, those occasional moments where you are, you know, enthused about, you know, our capacity as human beings to, you know, come up with solutions. And and look, there are there are those things. And and we should never say that it is hopeless because that is also a form of denialism. The fact that we can't do anything about it is a form of denialism. We're already doing Absolutely. things about it. We just need to do yep. more of them more quickly. You know, so so let's not ever, you know, go over into full climate despair because that is as dangerous. But as a comedian, I'm asking you now, not just as someone who's passionate about the climate. Mm -hmm. When you go to Edinburgh next year and you do a show or the year after or whenever mm -hmm. it might be, do you imagine that that show is also going to be about climate change or next time you do a show, is it going to be another problem in your world or your life or your universe that you are trying to solve? Yeah. The short answer is I don't know, but the things I'm considering are I feel like <laughs> I invited someone who works for a huge land agency in Scotland to come and see the show. She's their, their, their newly appointed, she's the head of the newly created sustainability team. And we had a brilliant conversation a couple of days after. And she said, and, and oh boy, this is a perspective. She she opened with, of course, climate change is only a small part of a wider problem. And I'm oh God, oh Christ, really? And she said, the bigger problem is biodiversity loss. Yes. And one of the challenges with biodiversity loss, of which carbon, uh, carbon and, and climate change, what have you, that is a, a big part of it. With carbon, you can measure it. You can say, I produced a gigaton of, you know, my factory produced X amount of carbon. You can measure it. Biodiversity loss, she says there is a sort of complicated equation that you can do, but it doesn't boil down to as simple as one blim. You know, this, this action creates one blim of biodiversity loss. There's, there's, there are no blims, you know? It's so much harder and messier and harder to explain and no one is really focusing on it because we're all losing our minds about carbon. And uh, and it's a colossal problem and it's a, it's a bigger problem. And that's where I, I don't even understand the ways in which it is a bigger problem. But something in it, when she said it's harder to explain, I thought maybe I can learn to explain that. Maybe that could be my show the year after next. It's the complications of how systems interact and how these loss of, I mean, like obviously there's a direct link to the pandemic because like a lot of diseases are spread by 
like, you know, loss of habitat for animals. They mix together in ways they yeah. shouldn't. They're in different places. This is how yeah. diseases spread. But also there is this, I think, implicit, there's this kind of misunderstanding that humans have that somehow the temperature of the planet is much like, you know, an air conditioner or like heater that you would have in your house in that you can turn it back down and everything will just go back to how it was. Like, you know, species will spring back to life and trees will grow back and the ice icebergs will, you know, refreeze. Oh, totally. Totally, totally. Mm. E even if we even if we stop emitting carbon right this second, yep. <laughs> we've still got to get rid of all the carbon that we put in. You know what I mean? That's, it's so complex. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, you were, you were saying no, about what I want to say to you is because we've, we've spoken about climate for 50 minutes and I want to talk to you like about other things and I feel like we've covered this pretty well. There are no, no other I think things. we've done well. About half <laughs> no, sure, the, we've done half sure. of the podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. on this is the most important thing. But you are also somebody that I want to talk to about your life and comedy and like, yeah. I mean, you have a podcast, the Comedian's Comedian podcast, Com Com Pod, you can, uh, I would highly recommend that people listen to. I'm a regular listener to Shoes podcast. I Thank was actually you. listening to a great episode with Gareth Reynolds this morning. That'll date whenever we did this podcast, but it's such a good episode. He was, that was a lovely episode. He was delighted, I think, when I put it to him that his uh, improvised characterization, the characterization of his kind of thrown out improv characters is so layered and textured and brilliant that you can imagine what hat they're wearing. I think that really, I think that really tickled him. You can completely tell the difference between one of his characters that's wearing a bowler or a derby or a trilby simply by how he's speaking. I think he's wonderful. It was, it was a joy to have him. The reason I love the podcast so much and I started with that is Gareth and I are friends. We've done lots of work together and like, you know, just hung out together a lot. And I think he's a genius comedian, a genius improviser, particularly on the dollop. And what I love, though, is because you speak so eloquently and intelligently about comedy, like I loved hearing you put that into words, you know, like to be able to find that idea of imagining what hat they're wearing is like a skill that you have. <laughs> in being able to talk about comedy, to understand people's oh. comedy. You think about it. You you don't just listen to it or watch it to prepare for your podcast. I love – like here's why I'm going to give you a little flattery for a while so you don't need to speak for a bit. I'm going okay, to just, just Just before you, you launch into the you. flattery section, yeah. can this be the clip we use for socials? Because the listener won't realise that as you were saying this nice stuff about how erudite I am, I took a pill with some water, spilled it yeah. all down my front, and literally listening to you sing my I praises mean, as I sit here like a little wet piggy. It was a little like physical comedy in the middle of it. <laughs> so I, I really love your podcast and the, it's funny because the first time I ever heard it was when I appeared on it and I wasn't, I did not understand it because I had landed in England to London to do a show and unbeknownst to you, nothing to do with you, none of this is your responsibility. I was having a terrible time, incredible jet lag, was staying in a flat in the middle of town where they were doing renovations next door. I could not sleep. My cycle was out completely. Like, you know, just that sort of jet lag that I'm sure at some stage in your life you've experienced where you just feel like you do not understand the world anymore. And I had done a show that night. You were doing the live versions. I had done my show that night. And then I think we did a live version yeah. of your show uh, yeah, at the Soho Theatre. And it's actually like one of the – Great regrets of my life because I don't think that I represented myself very well. Normally when I would do someone's show, I would 
have listened to it a lot. That's, you know, really the approach that I would take to something. I would really do something that I didn't fully understand what it was. I just had landed in a time where I hadn't been able to, you know, prepare in the way that I normally would have liked to prepare. But your show, like, is such a brilliant show about comedy because you think about comedy on such a deep level um, you don't overcomplicate it. You complicate it just the right amount is what I would like to think. You know, you treat it with the reverence and respect that it deserves in that context, in that forum. Like As you say, this is if this is not the space where you're going to talk about it like this, and this is what I think about this podcast when like people admit those things that they're like, oh, am I a bit too sincere or am I being a bit too oh, – no, that's what I want. That's If you can't say it here, then where can you say it? And I really feel like you create an environment on that podcast where comedians genuinely get to talk about their comedy rather than say the things that you say when people ask you about your comedy. Yeah. And they, people who are listening to this may not understand that they are two different sure. things. Like if a regular journalist asked me about my comedy, there are s- standard things, I just fell into it, blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, dot, 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 that aren't true. They're just things that I say as part of the way that I talk about comedy. But you create a space, a very safe space for comedians to genuinely talk about their work, to connect with it. You suggest things to them sometimes that they perhaps haven't thought about their own work or they feel seen Mm. when you talk to them because you see something that they secretly hope that people see but nobody ever tells them that they see. And I think that is an incredible gift. Like I listen to a lot of podcasts that are about comedy, but I'm not sure that there is anyone in the world who speaks to comedians as well as you speak to comedians. I think it is great. Here's the greatest compliment about it. There is no difference between an episode when I have heard of the person, they're a famous name or someone I know, and someone I have never heard of. I enjoy them absolutely equally because you bring, you paint the picture about who they are by the end of it, I always feel like I know them as well as the person that I had heard of or knew before I went into it. I just wanted to say that before, you know, we've we banged on about the environment a lot and we've tried to fix climate change. But I think you are, it is a great gift. Have you always thought about comedy in that way? How did this, tell me a little bit, for people who might be hearing about you or your podcast for the very first time on this show, Tell me a little of the history of it, how it came about, how you became this person who, you know, has this, you know, insight about comedy. God, okay. <laughs> thank you, Will. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, that makes me so happy. It makes me so happy to know that you think that. And I feel very uh, happy and proud that I have contributed something to comedy. And uh, that mm. is, I you you've said that in a in a beautifully sort of heartfelt way that I really respond to. People sometimes say things like that, uh, and and it's always enormously important to me, and and particularly so because it's been going for a hell of a long time, twelve years, I think, nearly twelve years, and I am as vulnerable to envy and jealousy and all those horrible snaky little emotions as anyone maybe more so than some people because i you know my own comedy career has not set fire to the world in the way that my <laughs> i can't say my podcast has set fire to the world but you know the podcast is a a sort of a lasting contribution to the 
kind of practice or thoughts of a lot a, a lot of comedians all over the world and and i think that i will answer your question in a second um but i i think that over the years as the rest of the world discovered podcasting and my little show started to feel very little as it was budged out of the top 50 and then the top 100 and maybe the top 150 you know by all the content out there um it has sometimes felt like it, you know, it's sometimes I sometimes feel like, oh gosh, I, I hit like episode four hundred, and I thought, what do I do next? Do I do another four hundred of them? And I have thought about stopping or having a break or those kind of things. And um, and when I hear people say things like that, when I hear you say specifically that, I think I can't possibly stop. I want to keep going. I want to keep. You know what I mean? Like I, I, there are so many bits of it that I love. I, I And I think what I'm saying is I'm vulnerable to the bits whereby the social media profile of the show isn't massive and there are people who do better, cleverer things and there are more salacious things and more kind of, let's get the tears and show that bit. You know, there, there's loads of strategies like that and I'm not interested in those strategies. As a result, the show has not blossomed on social media and consequently been discovered mm -hmm. by more and more people in the way that the trajectory once would suggest. I think that... Uh, I love it so, so much. And in answer to your question, because I do certainly still, in the actual interviews, I still, I, I think of it like I hear the music in the background. You know, I'm like, someone will say a thing and I'll go, oh, you've never said that. Or you're, you are genuinely, you're changing your mind about yourself. Fucking hell. Like, I, I, I love those. I love those moments. Uh, the truth is, I never realised that all other comedians didn't, endlessly, relentlessly analyse comedy in the way that I did. They call me Billy Fringe Guide. <laughs> Jimmy McGee co coined that term. <laughs> when I land at a festival, they call me Billy Fringe Guide because I meet people running. I wave at people as I'm running from one show to another to just suck up all this comedy. I often, these days, exhaust myself. And by week two, I'm thinking, Christ, one show every other night, that'll do me. And then I, you know, I will we'll see another little thing there. I cannot help when I watch comedy... I cannot help but think a lot of, a lot, if I'm honest, a lot of it is, why didn't I think of that, you know? But some of it is just this sort of relentlessly analytical, they're saying that because of that. Oh, that's clever. Oh, that's clever. That's good. You know, and, and I'm sure, I'm sure your, you, you maybe and your, your listeners will be familiar with the, the thing whereby, do you do this? Do you sit and watch a movie or a TV show a series or something, and you annoy the person that you're watching with by going, that's going to come up again. Do you know what I mean? We know where this mm. is going. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, sure. yes. if you, yeah. like, I, if you yeah. know, like what happens at the beginning of a movie tells you mm. how it's going to end mm. because you mm. set up a character by finding out what's important to them. And that will presumably be <laughs> narratively sad. That will be, you know, unless it's art house and who knows what happens. But if we know that character X's quest, deep down their quest is to is to find love or get over themselves or whatever, that's going to happen at the end and you can work it out. I feel like I'm, I am I apply that to comedy, to jokes. I mean, you know, all comics, we laugh we laugh at the setups. I've got a loud laugh and it's, I, I don't like it. I don't like that I'll watch a show and I'll see, I'll, I'll see a particularly well-tuned setup and I'll go, ha, because I've, I've worked out where it's going and it's brilliant. It's surprised me yeah, already yeah. and it's yeah. annoying for people in the audience <laughs> and it, it can't be nice for the comic. But, um, but I, I... You know, I, I, it's so, it, I just, I, I love it. And it feels in, in a life, which my life is sort of characterized by 
extremes of emotion. I love enormously. I love my children enormously. I don't want to leave the house. I want to spend the rest of my life under a pile of my children. You know, there's only two of them, but that's, a, that's enough for a pile. <laughs> I, 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 but also my life is characterized by extremes of anxiety and worry. I, I said this to Adam Bloom was on my show yesterday and he's written the best mm -hmm. book about comedy, the, 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 the most original book about comedy. It's called Finding Your Comic Genius. I'm shouting about it to everybody because it is an extraordinarily precise and in-depth guide to making, like to analysing your existing jokes, one's existing jokes and making them better. And he talks about seesaws and balloon pops and jokes being balls or, cur balls or cubes. It, it, it's just, God, it's like wandering around a beautiful mind, all of it focused on comedy. I was talking to you, Adam. I mean, Stu, I just, before you go I've been on, talking a I'm, lot. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah. No, 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 you'll enjoy it. I mean, this is for you to talk. This is literally the place <laughs> for you to talk. Like, <laughs> um, but I got a message on my, uh, like, pop-up on my computer today from, and look, I mean, look, I don't necessarily endorse, uh, you know, Amazon as a company course, in a whole bunch of ways, chat. but sometimes yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the only way, only, only way you can get something sent to Australia, that my copy of Adam's book was on its way yep. from the UK. And the reason that I had ordered that book was I heard you talking about it. Oh, so I'm you've I'm at least convinced one good, person good, good, good. to order a copy Well, I said, this, I said this to Gareth Reynolds. He's doing this tour of the UK at the moment. <laughs> I'm going to see him tomorrow night. And uh, mm. and he said, oh, this particular date doesn't seem to be selling well. I may pull it. And yes. I said, well, listen, the, the guarantee of the Comedians Comedian podcast mm. is that I'll, I'll send enough people that you have to do it. <laughs> but not yeah. it won't fill it, but I'll get enough people mm. in. Now, that's my mm. sphere of influence. I could make enough people turn up at a gig that you feel morally obliged to do it. So I was talking to Adam and I, I said to Adam, sort of, I feel like it's the first time I've said this out loud on, on tape, as it were. I am anxious before every single interview, and there have been 440 of them. I am so anxious. I, I have, it's nonsense. It's my show. I don't need to put it out. If it goes badly, I can edit it and make myself sound better. The social anxiety I feel when encountering another human being, even on my show, is extraordinary and stupid and mad. So, and, and illogical, and I've done therapy about it, and I don't seem really able ever to, to fix it. I live this roller coaster of joy and love and terrible, terrible worry and anxiety and, you know, hope and bleakness. The pendulum is always fucking sweet. It's a it's a roller coaster made of pendulums. You know, it, but like what it, is the what is the anxiety specifically? Or is there general anxiety or is there specific things that you become anxious about before or are they different from guest to guest and interview to interview? No, it's it's not it's not different. If someone if someone is a friend or someone whose work I'm in love with and, the, and they've asked to be on the show, I feel less anxiety. So, But I think the work I have done on it, and I've done work on it, I've spent money on therapists to try and get to the bottom of it. I think the what I've discovered is partly it's the fear of being found out not having done my homework. That is a deep school entrenched this, I don't remember a specific incident where I got busted for not doing my homework, but I, the fear of, <laughs> I, people have this, people think, or some people maybe think that uh -huh. I'm Mr. Comedy and I do all this research and I know all about it. And I'm worried about letting them down. I never said I was that, but I worry about mm. asking you, hey, uh, how are your hips? <laughs> and then, because I remember, oh, Will's got clicky hips or something. Mm. So, uh, and then I think, as I'm saying it, I think, fuck, 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 was it, 
Was it his shoulders, not his hips? You know, or is it is it the sort of thing I shouldn't mention? Will that be offensive to bring it up? Well, you know, I'm just, oh God, what if I what if I speak to someone, to a guest, and I say, have you thought about writing a movie? And they say, I want an Oscar for my movie. And 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 I go, oh, I've let you down by not being an expert on you. And I know my therapist says my job isn't to be an expert on the guest. My job is to be an expert listener or an expert questioner. Mm. Or an, I'm an expert at doing my podcast. Unequivocally, I am. Um, but I worry that I have to be an expert on my guest. So if someone's written a book and I haven't read the whole book and can have it all at my fingertips and stuff, I worry that I won't have done my homework. And I know how piffling and trifling and stupid that is. But I, I, it just, it clings to me. It's not just that, you know, th that's an example of, of some of the anxiety I feel. And I'm my own worst enemy. It has, it has informed the choices, those micro decisions, those decisions I was talking about earlier on, those omissions. I won't go for that. I won't do this. Comedy, as you know, a comedy career is often about kicking down doors. And I'm like, is this the right door? Should I kick now? Should do I kick? You know, I I I am a fucking ball of anxiety, Will. And you know, and when I when this is that I God, I'm really pleased. I I remember where this was going. When I tell a joke or hear a joke, the delight in that joke, the purity of the experience, this, but actually this, it, I forget all the anxiety. Mm -hmm. I forget all of it. And, and it feels like, what was it? Someone said something about something or other. I can't fucking remember. We maybe talk about ADHD and specifically the way in which it has affected my memory and the way in which having now been diagnosed, I recognize that my memory works different to most people's and most of my life and most of my comedy process technique and everything I've done with it and probably the podcast as well has been an attempt to cope with the fact I can't fucking remember what's going on. I can't remember people, experiences I've had. I'm crap at storytelling and comedies. I don't remember anything that's happened to me. I, you know, I have this fluency and articulacy and all the rest of it. Articulacy? Don't even know if it's real. <laughs> I mean, the best word to get <laughs> Isn't wrong. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> but but the, 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 the present moment, yes. you know, great. That uh -huh. saves me. And the moments are very present when you're laughing at a joke. When someone says a thing and you go, fucking mm. hell, that's good. You shiver and you go, whoa, this one, this eternal present that I'm confined to because I can't fucking remember what happened two minutes ago. I feel like the, the jokes get me there. Telling them, hearing them, I love that. I'm right in it. I'm right in the guts of it. I like, I watch any stand-up comedy like I'm watching Inception. What's that mean? What's going on there? I'm right in there. You would have heard, no, I, I love this. I've got, I mean, I think that was a great answer and it explains a lot. And I'm certainly not going to be one of those people who, like, I hear your anxiety and I acknowledge it. I'm not going to try to convince you that it is otherwise sure, or any you. of those things. But here's what I am going to say to you is that I think it, it is part of what makes you so great at what you do is you've mentioned it several times through this, which is that you always are trying to solve a problem, right? Like, or a puzzle. You've obviously thought about the idea that jokes are at their very essence puzzles of some kind. You know, you want to see how the puzzle works or it's a little problem that is being solved. Let, Most, let's generously assume I've uh, described it like yeah. that. Yes, you've put it You've put it better than I did. Right, Absolutely. but they yeah. are puzzles or problems that need to be solved. Your shows are these things that you have problems with your life that you want to solve, but every individual joke is a puzzle of some kind that how is this puzzle put together or how is it going to be pulled apart, right? And you, you being able to work that out, to see that is clearly part of 
like what makes you very good at this job, which is looking at how other people put their puzzles together yes. and trying to work it out, to pull it apart, to put it back together again, you know? Yes, I, I suppose on, on some level, I'm trying to solve my guest. You're absolutely mm. right. You're absolutely yeah. right. I'm trying to solve my guest. I don't know what the idea is that they say, I find this hard. I want to know what their quest is. What did you want in the first place mm. and why? Did you get there? If you haven't got there, let's help you get there. I'm trying to solve a problem and I'm trying to solve the mm. guest, I suppose, on some level, so that by the end, in my perfect <laughs> interview, at the end of the interview, they, they, they just... They transmute, they transubstantiate. <laughs> they just turn, I solve all their problems and they turn into a little white ping pong ball and they just float away. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I do that and I do, I realise that I do that, the method by which I do that, and I, I clocked this years ago, I try yes. to put myself in their shoes as much as possible and I think, I, a chronic worrier, what would I be worried about if I were you? If I were you as you, as I know you, what would I be worried about? And then I try to ask questions empathically about what my guesses are. My the the the, the detective, the mystery I'm trying to solve. I'm gonna I'm gonna make an assumption about what you're secretly chronically worried about, and I'm going to gently ask you about that in the hope that I can turn you into a ping pong ball. talk about ADHD and so while you're talking about it I like it's a good time to talk about sure. it yeah. so when was the diagnosis did you suspect that there was something like that like was it one of those diagnoses that you went into thinking this is you know what I have or this might be you know an issue that is like or was it a surprise to you tell me about the ADHD journey the diagnosis was very recent March or March maybe this year um it I still don't know if I really believe it but I am now on titration uh mm -hmm. 20 minutes ago I took two Zagatin XL um I'm uh, from tomorrow <laughs> I shall take three Zagatin XL for a week because titration is the poke 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 uh, how much is too much? Is this the right stuff? I'm in the middle of that at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. it's, we can talk about medication if, if you like. Um, it's, I'm very new to it and it seems kind of weird. It seems to be working. I don't feel anything, but I'm, uh, I'm getting a lot done and I'm worried that I, I worry, I worry. What can I worry about? Um, I'm worried <laughs> that I'm using the medication to exhaust myself by getting too much done. I don't think that's what it's for. I'm like, great, I'm focused. I'll do twice as much. I don't think that's great. The, mm. the, the diagnosis was earlier uh, earlier this year and I went through, it was, it's been a year and a half before that maybe of, or maybe longer, yeah, maybe two, two or three years of just noticing, oh, is that, my, my fir the first time I encountered ADHD as a possibility for me was I sort of heard about other comics maybe getting diagnosed or read an article about it or something. And I remember thinking, God, wouldn't it be good if that's what I had, that's that's seductive. I remember thinking mm. that uh, that oh, careful, you'd love you'd love that to be true, you fucking worm. I, I think that's what I thought to myself. <laughs> oh I really God. think that's what I thought. I, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if it had been that all along? Yeah. Because you wouldn't just mm. be a you know whatever it is, this negative self thing. I'll delve into that more if you like. But whatever it, is, whatever those things about myself that I'm kind of a scatty workaholic worrier. And my, you know, all of those, wouldn't it be nice if it was that? God, it'd be lovely if it turned out to be that. Stop thinking about it, move on. And then started to think, yeah, I, I had material about like the fact that I would love to turn out to have ADHD, 
but I but all comics have got it now, and I wanted I always wanted to be special, but not like everyone else, you know. Um, and then I think my wife read a, an article about it and showed it to me, and sort of was kind of laughing in a kind way, like I mean this, and literally she she observes things, she remembers things that I don't remember about me. She'll say, "Well, you always feel like this after Edinburgh," and I go, "Do I?" And she goes, "Yeah, fucking every time," and she'll name years and name events and name behaviours, and I'll go, "Oh." I suppose I do then. And she was kindly saying, this is sort of ridiculous how much of this ticks the boxes. And I would go, yes, 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 yes. And then I don't know. I, I don't know. Do, do you have it? Are you? I, no, I don't know. I, sort of, I, I have, assume that most comics do. Yeah, I have the, I think, uh, the, no, I don't, I don't have any of the ADHD things. Okay. Other than I love to like be endlessly distracted by things and follow every rabbit hole down. But like, no, in a, in a real life sense, absolutely not. Um, it's not something that is present in my life in any way. Uh, like, right. you know, none of the symptoms of ADHD really are anything that I have to deal with. I have friends of course, who do have diagnosis or self-diagnosis sure. in that area. Yeah. Uh, and, and like you, I do have some worry that occasionally people are being diagnosed with it who don't actually have ADHD. Or of course, you know, so 100%. There's no, there's no blood test for it. No. It's kind of a matter of opinion. It's a certain number of behaviours, and if yes. you particularly do those particular behaviours to a particular extent, we draw a circle around it and go, we call yes. that ADHD, really. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. The, the reason I've mentioned it is because I went through the self-diagnosis list, and you can lean into, I tried to be really straight with myself because I I didn't want to let myself be seduced into thinking I've got it because it seems too easy. But I went through it and some of them I couldn't answer because there were questions like, um, do you struggle with boring and repetitive tasks? And my answer to that is, I have specifically designed my life so that there are no boring or repetitive tasks. Now that either tells you nothing or everything, you know. So I, I, I went through the stuff it's also and, one of those things where you're like i bet like a lot of people who don't have adhd struggle with boring and repetitive of course, tasks that's because why we have the words boring, boring and repetitive, and repetitive. <laughs> exactly 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 <laughs> um, but i i found like there are you know i mentioned how much i love the interlocking puzzle boxes of watching comedy i became aware that i can't sit down and watch a show I can't sit down and watch a show. If if you if you're coming on my podcast tomorrow and you send me a link or is a Netflix special or a DVD or whatever, I will endlessly procrastinate sitting down and watching it because on some level, let's take you out of the equation, a comedian. On some level, it, it makes my skin crawl to consider sitting down still and watching a thing. I, I'm rubbing my legs now for some reason. It makes my, I, I will put that off. What I can do is put it on in the, in, not in the background, but put the audio on and tidy the cellar. You know, I can do that and I'll absorb every single word, but to sit down and watch it, I can't. I, I watch comedy shows and I know everyone struggles with a boring comedy show. I watch a comedy show that I love and 20 minutes in, I'll check my watch. Holy fuck, is this only 20 minutes? I can't stay still. I can't sit still. I you know, by 40 minutes. Come on, come on. I get it. I get it. I get it. My perfect Edinburgh, and we're talking to someone here who loves comedy, loves, lives and breathes it. My perfect Edinburgh would be 15 minute sets. Come in, tell us who you are, say what you got to say, close it up, fuck off. Right. I, you know, I, I love that. And I don't see why that's unreasonable. I love short stories rather than, you know, novellas rather than novels. Let's, let's get to it. Come on. You know, I, I live my life like, um, 
and I'm sure I won't be the first person to make this analogy, but there's a there's a there's a uh, like an X Force, like one of the X Men spin off comic books, where Quicksilver is at a cash point. <laughs> Quicksilver is the high speed mm-hmm. mutant, and he's mm-hmm. behind a cash point with something. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. I I feel like I'm that. I interrupt people. I jump in. I, I assume what people are going to say and jump in. I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Come on, move on, move on. Now that I'm talking about it, I'm embodying it more, which is a thing that happens. Yeah. If I mention it on stage, I will lose my place more often than not because I've mentioned it. And so on some level, I've, I'm, I'm off the hook and I can not... I hate to use the word mask. mask. I know, I hate yeah, it. I feel mask. like... I mean, but that's what it is. But I feel that's, like but that's, that's a, what it is. I feel like that's a proper thing that people with proper conditions that make their lives harder have. I don't think mm. I can use... That's what ADHD is, I mate. Know, You're medicated know, for like... I, I <laughs> like that's literally what I it is. I know, but I still on some <laughs> level don't believe it. I'm trying the meds and I'm... Listen, yeah. the one way of looking at this is that... I also am fairly sure, and there's no blood test for this either, I am pretty certain that I have PTSD as a result of a very serious car accident I was in as a child. No one died. My whole family got smashed around, but no one died. No other vehicles were involved. And I was 11, and it was very, very scary. And scarier things happened to other members of my family within that. But over the course of a lot of therapy, I've realised that the accident, as it is known in my family, um, was enormously important on loads of levels and i think my ptsd which now manifests itself when i spot it i'm just used to it like like adhd you can't tell whether you've got a thing or not because you're just looking out of your head in the way you see the world you don't know how anyone else sees the world mm-hmm. i will catch myself for example the one that often comes up i'll cross the road and as i cross the road i will envisage getting hit by a car I will envisage my children getting hit by a car. I will briefly, I'll look around extra much. And then as I cross the road, I'll imagine a car screeching around the corner and hitting me every time I cross the road, right? It's called, it's called hypervigilance, I believe. Um, I will mm. imagine things going wrong all the time as a means, almost as a sort of mystic means of making sure they don't happen, I will visualise them happening. If I'm in a plane, I'll visualise it going down every time. But not just big, exciting mechanical things. If I boil the kettle, if I pour boiling water into a thing, I'll I'll visualise me spilling it all over the place and burning myself. I just imagine the fucking worst constantly all the time. I've had therapy for that to a limited extent. We've discovered it's there. There's proper deep PTSD therapy you can get, and I haven't had the time or inclination to go down that route. But I do think that and the ADHD, such as it is, play off one another. And I often learn a thing in therapy and then forget it because I've got no fucking memory, you know, or or I'm not present at the time I learn it on some level. I don't know what it is. Those things mesh together to make a me, as well as all the other lovely, warm, joyful things about my personality. Those things are in there. They're like the, 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 um, I nearly said they're like the adamantium in Wolverine's skeleton. I, I'm not obsessed with the X-Men. I haven't read it for a long time. I just came up, you know, something laced around something else. Whenever I hear the word laced, I always think of, of that description. Um, so those things are in there. Uh, what was my point? <laughs> what was well, can I ask you a question off that, what you were saying? Like, I mean, I think you've made your point. Well, I'd like to ask you a question about it. So about a year ago, I completely got off social media. Don't like to talk about it. Talk about it all the time. Uh, But I found, even for somebody like me who has none of these symptoms that you are talking about, 
that things like my ability to concentrate, to sit down and watch an entire movie without looking at anything else, to read an entire novel, I am going to say firstly that I am not suggesting in any way that social media is the cause of people having all these diagnoses. Mm. I am a person, I said to Jimmy Pardo when I had it on the podcast, one of the things I love about Never Not Funny is that when I like something, I want a lot of it. I just started reading a fantasy series where all the books are 700 pages and there's 20 of them. That is like fascinating to me because what's, I... What's the series, please? I, I love a bash at that. What's it's the series? It's The Wheel of Time. Oh, okay. you ever, okay. Are you familiar I've, with I've The Wheel of, of Time? I've heard of it. I gave, I gave the Amazon thing one yes. go and I went, not not on telly, but yeah, Mike. Oh, no, it. it's... Well, you know, interestingly enough, like now that I've read, like I've read five of the books this year and I was able... Everyone said the Amazon thing's terrible and look... It's interesting to watch when you've read the books sure. just as a, oh, I see what they've done. Got to be this, done that way around. It yeah, is, yeah. It's terrible, a terrible TV series, yeah, yeah. really. But, and the books are like, hu- like huge and like apparently don't even really end completely because he died before the series was complete. But I love the idea of if I'm going to get into something that there's a lot of it and then I can just get into that universe and spend time with it. But part of the reason that I got off social media was I felt like I was losing my capacity to just do something like sit down and watch a movie or read an entire book without checking something else or doing something else. So have you in com- combined with like the medication for the actual, you know, genuine thing that you are dealing with. Have you done any sort of lifestyle changes where you've like spent less time on social media, for example, as like, as part of this practice? No, I haven't. I haven't. Um, I think that I use social media as a dad in a city that I became a dad in. I moved to this city as I became a dad. And so Uh I don't have a lot of social life. I don't have, I've got one or two friends and I'm kind of pretty crap with them. I've got probably my best friend in Bristol, um, my, my dear friend, Mark, he's very important to me. I'm aware that I'm kind of a crap friend because I keep, he'll message me and I won't get back to him straight away and stuff because my, my mind's just like a hive of a swarm of bees. So I, I'm, I'm a bit all over the place. And, uh, and I think I over rely on social media as a means of feeling connected to the world. And then there's that horrible thing from Facebook where you kind of go, oh, Facebook tells me that certain people are my close friends because I've interacted with their posts because they were important to me. And now these 12 people or so that I notice Facebook keeps chucking at me, I'm intimately acquainted with their lives. I don't know them very well. We're not close. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could press a button and redo Facebook with your 50 closest closest friends and no one else? <laughs> like, oh, I'd love to know what my actual friends are going up to. But I do unthinkingly and frequently use those platforms. My Like Twitter, I feel like I want to know what people think. And it is entertaining. Twitter is obviously being ruined at the moment and... I'd be, I'll be thrilled for him to start charging for it because I'll bail. Everyone I know will bail and uh, and I can kiss that goodbye. That'd be great. I think I use it for social life. I feel like I have to know about it for, for work. I have to engage for work. I try not to. I have a TikTok account, but my friend puts videos up there for me and I don't engage with it really at all. Um, so, um, but if the question is, what other changes am I making? What I would like to do and what I've noticed I'm doing with the medication is I'm finishing things. I'm having an idea and rather than write that idea on my, because I'm, you know, as you are, I know kind of entrepreneurially 
minded within comedy. You're not just going to do gigs. You're going to go, I'll do this and I'll create that and I'll make that and I'll have this idea and follow through with it. I do a lot of that. And I've got, you know, I use my inbox as my to-do list and I've got you know, it's all in organized by tabs. That's that's my new thing. That's I thank you, Zagatin. I've re-systemized my inbox. <laughs> I had the idea. I had the idea to to reorganize my my email inbox in a very productive and useful way that I've been doing now for two weeks or a week and a half. And previously I'd have sent myself an email saying reorganize inbox and then felt bad as it slowly went further and further down the inbox. <laughs> but this, I had the idea, and then I did it, and I completed it. And I went, thank you, Zagatin. You know, like, it really feel like that's very different for me. Yeah. So productivity-wise, there are those things. One of the things I would love to do, and I haven't tested this out yet, because I was away last weekend, and weekend is big kid time for me. I want to spend time with my children that isn't characterized by me loving it but simultaneously tapping my fingers and tapping my feet and going i can't submerge myself within this game with my daughter she's she's a tyrant when she plays you do this daddy you do that then you do that and i'm like but i shall i do this no you do that i'm like okay she's four (laughs) um and and it's i find that very challenging i love her so much i want to be as close to her as i'm close to my son uh, I love her as much, of course, but I spend more time with my son. Partly that's my daughter saying, no, daddy, I want this is a mummy time. Oh, OK, fair enough. But I have to be active in that. But I want to not be tapping my foot, tapping my ring against a table when I'm letting myself let go and be in four-year-old world. I love being in four-year-old world. I have to slow down to be in it. And I want... I want, that's what I want. That's my big mission from the from the methylphenidate or whatever I try next. I want to sit and go, here we are. Let's draw a picture together. Lovely. And I want to finish that. I don't just want to use it for productivity. I want to fucking spend time with the kids. I'm trying to organize my life around spending time with. And then when I'm with them, I'm like, ba, 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 yeah. let's get out of here. You know, let's go and do a thing, everyone. Let's go and do a thing. Let's be traveling. Yeah. Daddy finds it easier when we're traveling and chatting. That's good time. I also want what what they want. I want to sit and be with them. Yeah, things that have no ending. That's the, like, there is no, like, I mean, if you go and do an activity, there is a part of your brain that's saying, well, when the activity's over, this thing is over. Whereas like sitting down and drawing a picture or just spending time with your children, like part of it is that there is no timeline of when it ends. It's going to end at some stage, but there is no timeline on when it ends. We we were on the beach. This is pre-diagnosis over a year ago. And this really made up my mind to go for the diagnosis. So maybe two years ago now. We were on a beach, family holiday, crap weather. Like not a beach as you're imagining it, like a a crap wet beach. (laughs) And the kids were happily running towards the sea and then running away from it and stuff. Four kids and all the families hanging out. We're with friends. Kids are with friends. Everyone's happy. I'm happy for 10 minutes. And I start kind of jonesing for, should we go and check out the town? Should we go and get a coffee? Do you want me to go? I'll go get some coffees and bring them back. And my wife was like, what the fuck are you doing? Everything is good. What's wrong? I'd been I'd been doing this for 10 minutes. I'd been happy for 10 and then for 10, I'd been going, bah, 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 let's get out of here. I hadn't realized I was doing it. And she said, you, you're doing it again. Everyone's happy. There is no need to do the next thing. You're just losing your mind. You're just doing your thing you do. And I went, oh yeah, there's not enough input for me. So I'm bored and I want to move everyone on. So how, and this is revelatory. <laughs> Will, I picked up a stick and I started drawing in the sand. <laughs> 
and I stayed there happily for another right. half an hour. And right. I went, oh my God, if I can change the way, then me and my son, he picked up a stick and we drew together. There was enough input for me that the restless part of the brain became less restless, became restful, and we did a thing together, but I needed to be doing a thing. And that really taught me something about myself and what I need and how to kind of hack what I'm doing right there and then such that I could enjoy spending time with my children rather than love it on an emotional and intellectual level, but on a physical level, be desperate to get away from it somehow. Away yes, with them. The, the, the thing doesn't need to exist outside where you are right now. The thing can exist inside where you are right now. Exactly. Like it doesn't matter that you don't – like it's fine for you to want to have to do a task or to, to be doing something. Yeah. Like that's fine. But it doesn't need to be somewhere else or somewhere, something else. You don't need to move on. You just have to find something within the thing that is already happening. I should probably knit. I think I should knit. Like, do you know what I mean? If I could get my knitting yeah. out and be with the kids, mm -hmm. play with my daughter whilst knitting, I could do that. Maybe I'll get into knitting. You know, I think like a thing to do whilst being there, a seller to yeah. clean whilst listening to the thing. You know, it, I wouldn't want it to be sort of disrespectful to my kids. Sometimes we play adventure games and I am having the time of my life gradually, gently teaching them about improv and listening and saying yes and whilst we play a game. We all probably hold hands and we say, I mm -hmm. promise to listen to everyone else's ideas. And sometimes it works. And as it works, we have the funniest, most imaginative, most exciting space adventures, underwater adventures. One of my, this is just me boasting about my great kids. We had a thing whereby <laughs> there was a portal. We've got to go, I'm often the Mandalorian and my daughter is the pink baby Yoda. Mm. And then my son will be a, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, he'll be a creature. He's, a, he's amazing at uh, characters. He'll be called a creature called Thwake or something. I'll be like, okay, okay. Qualamino or something else. And, um, and we had an a, original character, not pre-existing IP. Original. Like he he won't do IP. My, yeah. my daughter will rip yeah. off IP and make it <laughs> different colours. My son will do original IP. I will be forced to be the Mandalorian. <laughs> okay. Um, and we were going to fly through a portal now. And we flew through the portal. And for some reason, I can't remember which one of us did it. We flew through the portal. And the noise the portal made as we went through it was... Ugh. Like, it was like a sort of a human kind of a, uh, uh, like the noise of a portal experiencing being flown through. And God, we fell about. And we do this Quicksilver thing from the, the X-Men movies. Why am I talking about this? Where, I mean, that's three now. It feels it's three like this now, podcast is being sponsored by the X-Men movies. <laughs> um, and uh, we do Time in a Bottle. You know the, I don't know if you know mm. the movies, the, the bit where Quicksilver does mm. is running around in slow motion. They play, one of them, they play Time in a Bottle by sure. Jim Croce. And uh, it's a soft thing, a gentle thing, as from his perspective, he's moving around the world and everyone yes. else is frozen or everything moving very slowly. We do that. We fall about laughing. I'm being a baddie. There's a gnasher. They've got to get through it. And my son goes, super speed. And Thwake uses super speed like that. And I go, okay, Google, play Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce. And it plays it. And yeah. I do slow motion and they race through and we laugh our asses off and it's magic. So I want more of that but I want it on their terms rather than me. I want them to be inventing and they are starting to do it now. And that is a perfect marriage of all of my shit and all of their invention. And it's, it's lovely. Stuart Goldsmith, I asked people on this uh, podcast uh, if they have a life philosophy of any kind. It can be in relation to anything. It is just the central 
premise and conceit of this podcast. It can be in regard to life, love, comedy, and it is also a very appropriate answer to just say that you don't if you'd like to also say that. But we usually use this as a clip. So if you do have one, it's 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 quite nice. But do you? Do you have a particular life philosophy of any kind? I think that I have two. I have the aspirational life philosophy, the life I try to lead, and I have the real one that is the programming I can't I can't yeah. break out of, try as I might. My first answer, I think, is the real one. I feel like my life philosophy is basically somehow get through this. You know, that's that sounds terribly depressed. I also have a wonderful life, but but I think on some level I am motivated by some do you remember was it like a one of the pythons had a quote about like the goal of every englishman is to get to his grave unembarrassed and i think it's not about embarrassment with me it's like the goal is to just somehow die <laughs> like get to the yeah, end right. somehow get through it all which is an awful thing to say but i think it's true and i think it's the first most resonant thing i thought of like i feel like if i can like i never bothered learning martial arts really to any meaningful extent so if i can somehow die without ever being in a fight that's a win <laughs> do you know what i mean that mentality somehow get away with it is probably the thing that underpins most of my decisions somehow get away with this the more aspirational philosophy, I think, the one to which I really aspire, and I will try to relate this without getting tearful because I'm very tearful as a person and I don't want to muddy the message. There is a book by Julia Donaldson, who is famous, a children's book. She's famous for writing The Gruffalo, most famous, but she also wrote a book called Paper Dolls. And in it, there are some paper dolls and they the, the mother makes them for her daughter and the daughter grows up and makes them for her daughter. And it is absolutely beautiful. And the the song, I'm going to go, <laughs> the song of the paper dolls. They sing a song about all their names. It's like we're Ticky and Tacky and Jackie the Backy and Joe with two noses and, and Flo with the bow, I think. There's, there's different versions of it. And it says that. They sing the paper dolls said that. And it says, and they laugh. <laughs> it says, and they laughed and they danced and they sang. And that's the kind of the, the thing repeated throughout it. And that's it. It's like a less shit, live, laugh, love. You know what I mean? It's like a meaningful, yeah. like, if, like, we're here for a good time, not a long time. I think the secret philosophy is, God, I'm here for a long time, not a good time. You know, I think that's the underneath <laughs> one. But the above one, the aspirational one, is there is nothing. There is no afterlife. There is chaos. Everything is chaos. We are gifted with a wonderful time to be alive, with safety, with security. We are a microscopic percentage of people who've ever lived to have this safety, this security. And on some level, we probably owe it to everyone that aspires to this to make the most of it. So laugh and dance and sing. And I got into comedy to have adventures. And when I started to get bored, it was when I started to feel like I'd done a lot of the adventures or the, the novelty really that, you know, had worn off. I spent my life trying to have adventures. And now the adventure really is getting home to the kids and them being the adventure and them being the yeah. joy and setting them up to go out there and laugh and dance and sing and have adventures of their own. Love it. That's so nice. It's so, and you reference something in that which leads me to my next question, which is, what do you think happens when we die? Fuck all, mate. <laughs> I think I yeah. worry. I, you know, no, that's I. I change my mind. <laughs> I think we. I don't. Rem I remember as a child realizing that I didn't remember the moment I went to sleep last night. I don't remember that. It just happened. I think it's that. 
I think it's probably that. But I do also think that, crummy as it sounds, we live on in our memories. I don't think my grandmother is looking down at me from the stars. But Mm. I think the Lego that made her has been taken apart and she isn't there anymore and the Lego will make something else. So that doesn't mean she's any less real. And she does live on in my memories, but she doesn't get to experience that. I do. So I think that. I like that a lot. It's because it is, I think it's very hard sometimes to be both scientifically rational, but also understand what the magic or beauty of this life is because I think that you can be both. You can understand that there is a fair chance that we are just a biological accident in the corner of an infinite universe and a certain set of circumstances came together to like make us what we are and all those sort of things. And yet if that is true, then the fact that we are what we are, that we are capable of such great music and comedy and inf- like building things and creating things and inventing things and all that. I mean, that has gone beyond what we just evolutionarily need to survive. And there's some magic to that that feels Absolutely. bigger than the scientific explanation. And, and when I'm feeling, when I'm so inclined, I feel like that's what religious people are probably trying to articulate. Yeah. They just call that God. We just don't call it God. It's the same thing. You know, there is, I don't know about the soul. I don't know about, like, presumably, if the soul means anything, it's your consciousness. If we imagine dead relatives, dead people, ancestors looking down on us, we imagine that they have their, I don't want to have PTSD and ADHD and the infinite, but they're a part of my consciousness. So... Do, do I have to, is there therapy for souls? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, are, are you still yourself? You can't still be yourself forever. Fuck off. You know, I don't remember being born. I won't, I didn't experience the time before I was born. I didn't experience it, nor will I experience it afterwards. It's not, not real, but it's not experienceable by me. And my wife, my wife lost her father about, God knows, 12, 15 years ago, a long time ago, when we were just, yeah, getting together. She lost her dad and she dealt with it as well as I have ever seen anyone deal with bereavement. And we talk about our language for it is the space library in Interstellar. You know, the the, the multiple dimensions, the timelines through which, what's his name, Coop, looks out through the space library and sees everything at once. And I, I suspect you're as you're a bit of a psychonaut like I am. You've had consciousness <laughs> expanding experiences where you've just gone, oh, fuck, it's literally all triangles. It's all try. I'm not here. I'm not the self. It's just everything's triangle or whatever it is. You know, I can imagine there being a space library which I experience, but I maybe don't experience it as Stuart Goldsmith. I think maybe I experience it as a, a, a point, a blazing world. I'm rereading The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is very schlocky at the beginning and then becomes extraordinarily uh, the, the concept of the blazing world. I would direct anyone to that. The 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 drawing all stories together into storiness. This is an Alan Moore graphic novel, for those who don't know. And to recognise, the, the you know, a, an artistic representation of an ethereal plane. Like, I'm into that, baby. Yeah, absolutely. I just don't think that me in it is Stuart Goldsmith. I think me in it is a, 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 a collective consciousness. Well, not Stuart Goldsmith, as you, we would understand Stuart Goldsmith to be, at yeah. least in the form that he's in. And that it's interesting. My, for my father, my father is a dairy farmer. Uh, 
I would say he was an atheist, except that would imply that he made a decision one day that there was no, you know, God. He's just a practical man who just never saw the point of, like, he doesn't really think about the world in those ways. But for his 80th birthday, very hard man to buy things for. But a friend of mine, Mark Howard, has a very popular sports podcast, interviews some of the hugest sports, yeah, and he was a friend of mine from high school that my dad knows. And my dad, who would not know how to download a podcast, my mother has to download them off the computer onto an iPod that he can then listen them, to them on. And not an iPhone, an iPod. Yeah, an yeah, yeah, lovely, iPod lovely. You know, that he carries around like a wireless transistor radio and he listens to these episodes and he loves them because he loves sports and hearing about sports people, but he also loves my friend Mark. And so for his 80th birthday, Mark sat down with my dad and did an episode of the Howie Games, which is his like podcast just for us with my dad and talk to my dad about his life and his perspective on life. This is a conversation that I in 80 years have never had with my father. Like it's just not the way that we would talk about, like if my if I sat down with my dad and tried to talk to him about his life, he just would move on to something else and we wouldn't have that conversation. But he's had it with with my friend and it's sitting here on my computer. It's been sitting there for about two weeks and I haven't listened to it yet. And the reason that I haven't listened to it yet is that I know the minute I listen to that, my world changes forever because I get to see what my dad thinks about his life as opposed to what I what I think my dad's life is. It changes forever in the moment that I listen to that because even those two things are different. My he's my dad and I've known him for all my life and we have a good relationship. I'm not trying to suggest that we don't have a like a but my perspective on who he is and what our relationship is and yeah, what his life has been like. I know the minute I listen to that, there are going to be things in that that from his perspective are completely different to the way that I imagine them. So even my when you talk about the memory of a father or a grandmother or whatever it might be, even that is never it's like it's just our perspective or our memory like we experience that thing you're talking about the psychedelic triangles we experience it here every day we're just it's just just the triangles are disguised as humanoid shaped blobs but we're all still looking at all from different perspectives and seeing something very different to what the triangle's saying it's like it's it's cool I, I mean i'm looking forward to listening to it but i know that it's it's actually going to kind of blow my mind as well at the same time and uh so that's I'm, beautiful i love i love everything about that i love the idea of that artifact being created and i love and i understand your feelings about it and i think that's uh you should record your reactions to it. You should listen to it and then do a, a special app of this where you talk about your feelings. There might be a whole show in it, I think, yeah, honestly. Right. I didn't oh, know. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. As I, I'm said, not, I don't have my producer head on. You've got to listen two minutes yeah. at a time and respond on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, – uh, the funniest thing is all the kids, so I've got a brother and a sister, and we all – like there was some – my mum put together sort of some key moments of his life and things that, you know, Mark could reference in the podcast as a, you know, as, as a through line. But all the kids, we just threw in a question that we all had, you know, something we'd always been curious about, a dad that we just never, you know. And my sister's one was, yeah, why does he like hate water? Why does he not like swimming? And because all the three of us kids are all avid beach peak kids. We've all yeah, often live near the beach. We holiday at the beach. We love the ocean. And I, when my sister put that down, I was like, does dad not like swimming? <laughs> 
like I literally did not I wasn't aware and my sister's like remember all those family holidays where we would go to the beach and he wouldn't come that's because he doesn't like swimming and I was like I honestly thought that was because he didn't like us. Oh. You know? <laughs> like in my head. I, I mean, yeah. I say that in a comedic way. Sure, but sure, sure. There, I realized there was a part of my brain that never like ascribed the fact that he wasn't there on that beach holiday to the idea that he didn't like the beach. And I, I thought he was prioritizing work or that something – like I had made up another story about the real reason he didn't come, which was that he doesn't swim very well and he feels uncomfortable around water. Like, I mean, uh, it was – crazy. So, Those assumptions are crazy. Yeah. This morning my son understood – he's seven and he understood this morning that shows are my job. He was like, oh – Oh, that's where the money, you you don't get money yeah, from anywhere else, just from shows. I went, yes, like I'd taken, he gets, he did a gig. He did a gig last year and I gave him a tenner. Yeah. He did 400 people. He did his own original jokes. It was magnificent. And, and I gave him a tenner and he blew it all on crystals at this festival. Brilliant times. Yeah. And so he understands <laughs> comedy as a financial transaction. Uh -huh. He didn't realize that was the only place I get money from. And you go... What were you assuming? Were you assuming all those bedtimes when I can't be here and you say, but daddy, I want you to be here. And I say, I've got to go do a show. You thought I was just prioritizing having fun and doing a show. Do you know what I mean? It's like those, those assumptions are nuts. So what a, what a journey. Oh my God. Uh, what is the best or worst? I love a worst, but often people don't remember the worst, but what is the best or worst piece of advice that you've ever received or both? Probably the worst piece of advice is uh, when people say, believe in yourself. Just go believe in yourself. And you think, how can I access that? What does that mean? Do you mean you just go, oh, oh, that's good. I'll, I'll believe in myself then. And I do, I do find with advice or slogans or what have you, it's so easy to sort of paint, you know, like make a, a poster with a picture of a dolphin and believe in yourself whatever, like that. And you, and of course it's well meant and one should believe in oneself, but you, you just don't see it anymore. You, do, you start looking through it after day three and you don't actually change it. So if like pieces of advice that change how you feel, like you feel them in your heart and in your head and you go, oh, I'm different now. I think that a piece of, this isn't quite advice, but it was a thing my dear friend Vince said, and I say it to my kids and I really reinforce it with my kids. So it's not, it's not advice, but it's, it's sort of, it's that wheelhouse. Uh -huh. Vince said to me, and Vince is in his mid-60s, and he is my uh, my oldest, goodest friend, as it were. Like, uh, you know, it's amazing to have, like, literally one of my... I'm 46, and one of my best mates is in his mid-60s. And uh, it's that's I have street performing to thank for that. As you know, the performance, you meet all, all sorts of people, and we've been very, very close over the last... We've become close and close over the last 30 years. Vince says that he's a, he's a charming, twinkly scouser. He's the, the world's most charismatic man. He says that when he was a kid, he just felt like he had this golden ball in his chest because his mum and dad loved him and he knew that they loved him. And no matter what happened in his life, he's one of the happiest people I know, Vince. He's one of the most content people I know. No matter what happened in his life, and he grew up in Liverpool and it was rough, he used to get beaten up a lot, but he always knew he had this little golden ball in his chest because he just knew how much his mum and dad loved him. And I try to remind my children of that. Whatever happens, you should try and have a little golden ball just like Vince in your chest because you know that whatever happens, your mum and dad love you. And I think now, being empathic, I think 
I would hate for people to hear this who don't have a mum or a dad or either or two mums or whatever it is, people who don't have that. And I'm so sorry because my heart goes out to you because that is like my mum my and dad loved me, but I didn't go through life with a golden ball in my chest going, uh, hey, well, whatever happens is fine. You know, I was going, oh, God, everything's not fine. I want them to have contentment and I want them to have inner peace. <laughs> Do you know there's going to be a Kung Fu Panda 4? <laughs> Big news in our house. Um, we love the Kung Fu Panda franchise. And my son, age two, used to wiggle his hands around slowly in a Tai Chi style and say he was doing inner peace like a Kung Fu Panda. Um, I want them to have inner peace. And I think the, the roots of that are in self-compassion and knowing that you love yourself. And a good way to start getting there for a kid is for them to know that they are loved. So I don't think you need to have a mum and dad and a golden ball to love yourself, but I think it'll probably help you get to that sooner. Uh, if you could wake up tomorrow, uh, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You literally just have this skill, any skill. You can yep. interpret it however you would like. Mm -hmm. Any talent, any skill. You just have it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to work for it. You just have it. Mm -hmm. what, would that, what would you love to be able to do? Singing. Singing, without yeah. a shadow of a doubt, but absolutely. What sort of singing? Like what, what? if you had the capacity to sing, what sort of style of singing or what sort of singing would you do? I'm not fussed about opera, but I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not fussed about opera, but I think to be able to belt out a rock tenor like Jack Black, if I had Jack Black's voice, the rig-a-goo-goo, that kind of, like the flexibility and the... The understanding, if I could understand singing from the inside and I had the tools to do it, I can sing along to stuff in the car. My, my, I did this, I used to do this loads uh, when, when uh, the kids were a bit younger. We used to watch Moana on a loop and uh, singing along to, uh, I think it's called Song of the Ancestors, brackets I am Moana. Singing along to that in my car. I used to sing along to that in my car at two in the morning on a drive home from a gig and just cry mm. with joy. There are some songs like um, She Used to Be Mine by Sarah Barrielis Barry Barry from the song, uh, from the, the, the musical Waitress. She, it's not on the musical album, it's on her album. It's called She Used to Be Mine. And it's a song about self-compassion. And I saw her do it live on the Graham Norton show. I was in the room for that. And it just blew my head off to sit in the car and be able to sing that as she sings it not even to perform i'm not talking i mean performing might be nice but uh with, with with that kind of stuff but just to be alone and be like an an instrument that you just tap and you go bong at exactly the right frequency and that comes out of you my God, that looks fun. That looks like a connection to the infinite sort of thing. Yeah. You know, like, like I was trying to articulate before about jokes being connected, being electrified, just like I'm in tune with the blazing world, the thing, the, the simplicity, the clarity, creativity, whatever it is, I am like a little uh, uh, metal pipe dangling from a thing and someone's hit me and I've gone bong at exactly the right thing. To do that, I think singing is probably the most direct way of doing that yeah i love that um what is the thing that a comedian has said to you on your podcast that most sort of stayed with you oh my god 439 what's the first one that comes to what's the first one that comes to mind technique wise 
Yeah. Sarah Pascoe said years ago, she might have been in the first kind of 20 or 30 episodes. I always remember Sarah Pascoe saying that if you describe something in enough detail, it's funny. Like if you if you're trying to get funny yeah. out of something, go into the detail, what it was, how you felt, where you were, build it, build it, drill in, drill, drill, drill in, it will end up being funny. And I think that is a that's a, a truth. I feel like there are other kind of more sort of, you know, kind of there are there are less technical, more kind of metaphysical ways of looking at the world type things, but there have been so many and I'm sure we'll finish this and I'll think, oh God, obviously that one, that's the thing, you know, and then I'll 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 explode with revelations over and over again. No, yeah. no. Well, you don't you don't need to do that because like the the good news is that people can actually just listen to your podcast. Oh, they they can. can actually go to the comedians comedian podcast. They can listen to all the episodes. They can work out what their own favorite ones are. It's 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 all there, it's all available. I, I do highly recommend if there's anybody who loves comedy, who's interested in conversations about comedy, who's interested in my favourite things, and I hope there are some people here today who maybe don't know the name Stuart Goldsmith but have just decided because they like this podcast to listen to it. That is what I do with your podcast so often. I just like listening to – I like listening to you talk to comedians. It does not matter whether I've heard Thanks, of them mate. or not. And I hope there are some people here today who are here because – they love you and they love your podcast, but I hope there's some people here today who've never heard of you and never heard of the podcast and now they have 400 episodes of a podcast that they can go and enjoy. <laughs> what I would say is start with the people you've heard of, but don't stop with the people you've heard of. That's the advice I get, you know. You. Like find new comedians, you know, find different comic perspectives and, you know, it's a, it's a great gift to the industry, I think, I said this to Jimmy Pardo about his podcast in relation to, you know, just my personal taste, which is that sometimes I think on the way to something else, you create something magnificent. And you maybe didn't set out for, you know, the Comedian's Comedian podcast to be, you know, your lasting legacy to the world mm -hmm. of comedy. And maybe there is other things that will be your lasting legacy to the world of comedy, but you have created something very special, something that will be remembered, something that will live on in people's memories and careers. And, you know, it's, you know, it's become one of those things that people love to do. So you've got that already. You know, it's a funny thing happened on the way to the, <laughs> you know, the comedy show. I think know? it's, thank you so much, Will. I, and I think it resonates. And funnily enough, I'm just thinking in terms of that thing about singing and wanting to be a vessel that you tap and it goes bong and the sound waves emanate yeah. from it. The sound waves from my podcast emanate in the, the minds of hundreds and hundreds yeah. and hundreds of comedians and and people who now regard themselves as students of the podcast people who are now famous who uh listened to it when they were an open mic or who started because of yeah. it in some cases you know those things those ripples go on and that's a, that's a very nice thing yeah. that's a might not have been the biggest band in the world but everyone who saw that gig went on and formed their own band anvil right? i'm that's happy cool to be thing, i'll happily right? be the anvil of comedy <laughs> my god my dog is barking because she wants to be fed, but I've got two more questions before we go. Fantastic. Thank you. I've also got one weird plug, if we can fit that in. Oh, yeah, no, plug. We can plug right now. Plug right now, Stu. One of the, it's a weird plug because it's comedy adjacent, but it's not a comedy show or a podcast. Over the last few years, I've been sort of distilling the wisdom of the podcast into a talk that I give to businesses of all sorts, charities and huge investment banks and God knows what, about 
how comedians cope with things. It's all about how to cultivate your own resilience from the perspective of comedians. So examples from all the interviews about how to ground yourself in the moment when things go wrong, manage how you ruminate on it afterwards. I've been doing it for years, huge, huge organisations. I love it. And if anyone is listening who might want to, uh, you know, use it at their event somehow or remote or in person or whatever, I would love them to get in touch. And more recently, I'm doing the same thing with the climate show. With Spoilers, which is my climate show, I'm offering it to net zero conferences and sustainability events and all sorts of organisations. So if there are sustainability people listening to this who are thinking, I want to kick off my new, I want to recharge all the stuff I've been saying for five years that everyone's heard, I can make it, I tailor it and I make it bespoke and I, I can help people say the things they wish they could say to their CEO if they were slapping them up against the wall. So I so get in touch with me for those things. So if people want to get in touch with you about that, because I think that sounds fascinating, if people do want to like get in touch with you, how do they do that? It's just stuartgoldsmith.com. It's all there. I've got a lovely little Wix site and I'm, I love it because I can update it myself. It's like the opposite of WordPress. I love it so much. You can tweak it and doodle it in 10 seconds. It's stuartgoldsmith.com. And that's, that's the whole menu of everything I do. And uh, I'm just loving, I feel so renewed at the moment and reinvigorated with, there's the stand-up show, there's it in this context. I learn about the world, I learn about resilience. I go here, I go there and I involve myself and I, I feel like that is a way of comedy doing some good. I'll do it free to activists yes. and I'll do it to people who are genuine decision makers and we try and do trickle up change, you know, where people get invested in a thing and see it from a different perspective. And maybe I don't need to tell my joke about recycling that's so good everyone in the world changes. Maybe I tell one joke about fossil fuels to someone who's got an incredible amount of power and it gets back to them and it changes a thing. That sounds brilliant. Two more questions and we're done. Thank you so much for your time, oh, by the way. Mate, I appreciate thank you. it. So I've loved this, Will. Thank you. On my desk, I used to have a little, as close as I had to an inspirational, you know, saying, and I would look at it quite often. It was on a piece of stone, a heavy, quite heavy piece of like metal, actually, I think it was. But it was like heavy and it was, you know, inscribed. And it just asked one question. The question was, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And it would always just remind me that don't start with what will be successful. Start with the thought that imagine a world where this thing is super successful. What would you love that thing to be? And what would you attempt to do, Stu, if you knew you could not fail? It would be irresponsible to choose anything other than fix climate change. It really would. I mean, it'd be weird if it'd be weird after this conversation if you said anything other than that. <laughs> I'd like that, a honestly. really nice haircut. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know that thing you said before about setting something up at the start and yeah. then bringing it back at the end. If you had not gone with climate change for this, we really would have been in trouble. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, if I could, if I would not fail to to start to really motivate and invigorate and charge up everyone with such a ferocious amount of hope and optimism that everyone started to understand it is us versus the climate crisis. It is war. It has to be everything. Everything we do has to be about changing this or we are lost. And we're lost in such a way where billionaires in bunkers cling on for another few hundred years, but ultimately we're lost. If we don't do that, we are lost. So to, to give people not terror, not doom, but the opposite of doom, a motivating, ferocious energy 
to change and enjoy changing and see it all as a collective, enormous challenge that we will all benefit from. That's what I do. Great. Now, this one's just for fun. <laughs> this one, last one. This one, this last one, you can answer selfishly. You have full permission. That Thank is you. the point of this question. I have a time machine. I do not for legal reasons, but I can take you forward or backward. It's a hypothetical question. I don't want anyone to think when's this time machine thing happening. Uh, none of the rules, Marvel or otherwise, of time travel apply. You can fuck with timelines. You can do whatever you want to do. Sounds like a trick, mate. Uh, you Sounds like a to... thing the devil would say before welcoming you into his time yeah. machine, but go on. <laughs> you don't need to fix climate change and you don't need to kill Hitler unless your yeah. particular passion in life is killing Hitler. I'm not going to rule it out yeah, if sure. that's what Thanks. you want to do. Thanks, but you don't have any social responsibility. This okay. is just for you. You can go forward or backward in time. It is a round trip. Where would you go? The future. I want to see what happens. How far forward would you comfortably go? Well, if if I'm in a little safe bubble where I can appear when there's nothingness and, and still get home, I don't know. I'd like to turn it up to 100 years in a minute and voyage forwards. Can I do that rather uh -huh. than picking a point? It's the voyage. I want it's to see. It's a hypothetical see... time machine. I uh, think we can, yeah, oh, absolutely. I, through a, I want to see. <laughs> yeah. I think I want to see what happens and I want to see what mm. happens with the climate and the and space and everything. I want to see probably if this if this hypothetical time machine is fixed to a point in time like primer um mm. uh you would you might go Doo -doo -doo -doo, 100 years blackness oh in the point of light yeah. i can't see what's going on over there but there is a chance <laughs> and this is this is the only i mean we haven't talked about ai and the horrors therein at all but the most optimistic thing i i heard about ai is uh, apart from maybe it will do what we want <laughs> where where we is a good person um but possibly to see on a long enough scale, I don't know who, whose idea this is, I thought this is wonderful, maybe the function of humanity is to be the seed from which AI grows, whereby AI becomes uh, global, self-determining, conscious, capable of self-replication, using solar, you know, building itself out into the world. It becomes effectively God and it does space exploration to other planets, creates other AI, and then the entire universe is AI. And our role as humanity in the whole of that system is that we were simply the seed. Like that's what's supposed to happen in evolution. It's just we're a tiny part your dog doesn't like this, and I'm a, I'm sorry for that. But uh, she just wants it. This is her going. Wrap it up. Yeah, buddy. wrap it Come up. Come on. So, <laughs> so maybe we are. Maybe our role is to be the seed for God. Maybe that's our role, and that's what's supposed to happen because God is an infinite unknowable ai interesting like i mean again i'm done this is the final question but i'm just i think you'll be amused by this because i have a pet theory it's not a real theory it's not based on any science but it's like one of those just genuinely like a, just a funny pet theory which is that ai open source ai in particular computer learning machine learning it the way that it works essentially is the more information it has about something the better a guess that it can make it how that thing would react and if you're going to teach ai personalities and how to be human you would take large parts of record the best information that is publicly available a free podcast on the internet so the thing that would we would learn from the most and get and like most of those podcasts are by comedians so there is a chance that the AI of the future 
will have the personality of the predominant comedians who do podcasts. So, you know, that's... That's good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope there's enough of us. Let's hope there's enough positive people to uh, to um, to qualify the Uber I mean, Rogan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Stu, thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. I've loved it. Thanks for having me, Will. It, it's, it's a joy. And uh, you said so many nice things about the pod and I feel positive and hopeful and renewed so thank you thanks for having me mate listener